It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. It's Thursday, August 6, 2009. Only one more day left of work before you get to rest. I'm there with you. The older I get, Thursdays, you know, I, I wish I could turn them into Fridays. But then what would Sunday be? You, you see, something has to give somewhere. Yeah. Thank you for tuning in. You are listening to Fighting for the Faith, and my name is Chris Rosebro, and I'm your servant in Jesus Christ, dishing up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to get you to think biblically, to help you to think critically, and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. You Believe it or not, God's Word is, uh, well, true. If you choose not to believe it, I, I would like to talk with you. There's good reasons to believe it. Let me give you one in particular. Uh, and people say, well, how do you know the Bible's the Word of God? I'm glad that you asked. Um, let me answer that question for you as succinctly as humanly possible. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, real simple. What we do in order to establish the uh, veracity of the Bible, if you would, its credentials, if you would, is we first and foremost take the Bible for what it is. It's not a book. It's a library. Strip off the gold leaf. Uh, get rid of the really nice, thin, see-through onion skin uh, paper. And basically look at it for what it really is. A, a library of ancient documents. Plain and simple. These documents are to be evaluated the same way you evaluate every other ancient document. We don't want special pleading or for there to be a special handling of, of, the, of the biblical documents. No, they are to be handled and treated like any other ancient document. Plain and simple. When we do that, what do we discover? Well, we discover a few things. Uh, you've got a lot of interesting books inside of this library known as the Bible. Particularly of interest is uh, is the section of the of the New Testament documents known as the Gospels. Those Gospels claim to be none other than eyewitness testimony to the life, ministry, at death, and resurrection of a guy who was lived two thousand years ago, cruising around the Judean countryside, claiming to be none other than the God of the Old Testament in human flesh. Now you're thinking, that's quite a claim. <clears throat> yeah, that's right. But again, we, we don't want any special pleading for the, for the uh, biblical uh, documents. <clears throat> that being the case, these eyewitnesses, they, they've recorded for us their encounter with this man who claimed to be God in human flesh. And the funny thing is, is that uh, their stories are corroborative. That's right. You, you can look at this, the uh, encounters that John had. With Jesus, you can look at the uh, encounters that Matthew had with Jesus. You can look at uh, the eyewitness testimony collected by Doctor Luke, and what you find is is that you have a whole bunch of people, not just one person, but a whole bunch of people, who basically recorded in these uh, New Testament documents their experiences with this guy named Jesus of Nazareth. 
He wasn't a good, a good guy or a Galilean Boy Scout. He claimed to be God in human flesh. Either it was who he claimed to be or he's a complete nut job. I mean, you shouldn't really be listening to him. Anyway, the, according to the eyewitnesses, the ultimate proof that Jesus offered when challenged regarding his, his claims to deity are his physical death and resurrection, that he would rise again three days after he was crucified. And lo and behold, according to the eyewitnesses, Jesus, three days after he was crucified, raised from the dead, they all saw him, had meals with him. In fact, over 500 people saw Jesus alive at one time. Now, that being the case, it is a historical fact that Jesus Christ was not only a person of history, uh, but that he lived 2,000 years ago, had a ministry in Judea, and uh, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, and he was raised from the dead. The question is, what does that all mean? Now, when it comes to the documents, uh, as far as the Bible is concerned, real simple. What was Jesus' opinion of the Bible? What was his opinion of God's Word? Quite frankly, according to the eyewitness testimonies, uh, Jesus himself considered the Old Testament documents to be nothing less than the very Word of God. In fact, a word that couldn't be broken, and he claimed that not a dot or a tittle of it could could leave existence. In fact, he said, heaven and earth will pass away, but God's word will not pass away. So Jesus had this extremely high view of Scripture. So in other words, Jesus puts his stamp of authority on the Old Testament. Furthermore, according to the eyewitness testimony, we find out that Jesus promised his followers, his apostles, that he would give them a special gift of the Holy Spirit, that they would be able to have, uh, what's the term that was in that movie a few years ago? Total recall, that's right, total recall uh, regarding uh, his life. And they, what we find out is that they accurately recorded Jesus' life and ministry. And furthermore, the letters that they wrote became authoritative scriptures as well. Plain and simple, okay? So how do we know that God's word is true? Well, because Jesus said it was, he's God, and he proved it by raising himself from the dead. Now, if you're thinking, boy, that sounds pretty crazy. Well, believe it or not, Christianity is the only religion on the planet that has basically a falsifiable truth claim. Yeah, that's right. I'll be the first person to leave Christianity if they can definitively prove that they've dug up the bones of Jesus Christ. Because if that's the case then the whole thing is built on a lie. It's built on non-reality. Christianity doesn't ask you to take a blind leap of faith uh, into the darkness against the evidence. In, In fact, quite the contrary. Christianity invites you to look at the evidence regarding its claims and see for yourself whether or not Uh, the Christian claims can hold up under historical, evidential scrutiny. And believe it or not, there's been many a men over the centuries who have endeavored to launch off into destroying Christianity and disproving the claims of Christianity, specifically the claims of Christ. And these men somehow have found themselves... um, in the Christian faith at the end of their endeavors. Why? Because the evidence is that good. But evidence doesn't provide you with 100% certainty. So if you think I'm sitting here arguing and basically saying, well, if you go and you examine it, you'll be 100% certain that that's the case. Um, Nothing on this planet offers 100% certainty. Um, You don't have 100% certainty that when you get out of bed in the morning that you're not going to slip in the bathtub and break your neck. 
yet you go into the bathroom, brush your teeth, shave if that's your thing, um, and you take your shower and you know use the facilities, uh, all basically with relative certainty that uh, you're going to make it out of the bathroom unscathed. Yet we know from uh, evidence that the bathroom is probably the most dangerous room in the house, and there are plenty of people who lose their lives every day in their bathrooms. So you don't have 100% certainty when you wake up that uh, going into the bathroom is going to be, you're going to get out alive, yet you take the risk, so to speak. And so what is it that covers the gap, the, the gap between the certainty and the evidence that you have and the ability to say, you know what? The theological claims regarding these historical facts are true for me. And that basically, what I've said earlier, is, is that Jesus' death and resurrection, these are historical facts, plain and simple. Okay, His life, his ministry, his death under Pontius Pilate, and his resurrection from the dead, all can be demonstrated with a high degree of certainty, high degree of probability. In fact, that's the best explanation of the evidence um, that, that these claims are true. Uh, but see, the thing is, is that the devil even knows that Jesus Christ had a ministry 2,000 years ago, was God in human flesh, and that uh, he healed people and was killed and crucified and raised from the dead. The devil knows that, but that, the devil's not saved. What's the, what is it that bridges the gap between the, the certainty that you can gain from an a look at the evidence and uh, trusting in Christ for your salvation? It's called faith. And uh, that faith is founded on the facts and the evidence in the Word of God. But faith basically says that not only did Christ die on the cross and was raised again on the third day, but his death was for me. That's right, for me, for my sins, and, uh, and for my salvation, and for my justification. That's the thing that bridges the gap. So you don't have 100% certainty in anything, and don't think I'm arguing here for 100% certainty. What I am saying is, is that with a high degree of probability, if you look at the evidence with an objective eye, you will find that Christianity is a religion founded on real historical facts. It doesn't ask you to contradict uh, reason or the evidence. In fact, Christianity explains reality quite well. All right. Today we got an interesting program. We're going to be, uh, I got a little bit of email I want to get to today. And then uh, I'm going to, one email in particular, we're going to talk about uh, the Christian view of tithing, if you would. Now, it's, it's almost a misnomer, but I have an email from a, a gentleman in New Zealand who uh, does some work with the Word Faith Televangelist, and he had emailed me on this. So we're going to spend some time on that. Um, we've got, the, I sent out a small um, Fighting for the Faith uh, mini uh, Fighting for the Faith segment today on Tony Jones. Uh, apparently, he's speaking with a forked tongue. I'll give you the details here on the big program today. And uh, we're going to be also looking at um, how this, uh, how are things going for Andrew Deloach, who uh, basically, I read uh, his uh, discerning work yesterday at Fighting for the Faith uh, regarding what Tony Jones had said, and uh, there's another level now that the argument has gone, and so we're going to ask the question: uh, Does homosexuality hurt anyone? That that claim, that's apparently the philosophical reason why it's okay. That's being bantered around on Tony Jones's blog, and then I've got the question for you. <clears throat> I'll ask it right now, but not answer the question. Guess who's discovered the message of purpose? 
Guess who's discovered the message of purpose? Yes, one of the large religious uh, church bodies in the United States. Well, church bodies, you know, maybe that's the wrong. One of the large religious bodies in the United States has discovered the message of purpose. We're going to see if you can guess who they are today. We'll be playing a little bit of audio from that uh, from a recently launched website and videos that this particular group has uh, made available. See if you can figure out who they are. And then we're to round out the program today, we've got a uh, a a bonafide Star Trek sermon. Now, it's that time of the year, folks. If uh, you attend a seeker-driven or purpose-driven church, well, th- those guys have a lectionary every bit as much as the Catholic Church does. And uh, it's summertime. That means it's time to preach about movies. Because, you know, the whole Star Trek movie, that was uh, um, about Jesus, right? <clears throat> Well, we'll see. So we've got we got a sermon we're going to be reviewing today, and the guy who uh, is doing the sermon they, they're they're whole, they've got a whole blow whole, full blown sermon series they're doing, including sermons on uh, Transformers, the Terminator. Um, you know these guys are you know they're relevant. So we'll take a look and at the content of that particular sermon and see if. Uh, just how biblically faithful it is. Relevant, yes. F- uh, fidelity to God's word, well, that has yet to be determined. So, if you would like, I recommend that you make yourself comfortable and you can, uh, if you can, go and find yourself a place to sit down and enjoy yourself. Although, I've got, again, I've got more claims uh, from people who are saying that they are losing weight while listening to Fighting for the Faith. So, you know, if if you would like to, rather than sit down and make yourself comfortable, if you'd like to exercise, we're all for that because we have to find a positive reason for listening to this program because, uh, like I said, this program, and I have to warn you, could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church, and unfortunately, we now know it could also cost you a relationship with a, with a girl. So... <clears throat> got to keep all that in mind. So if, you know, if if you're losing weight while listening to Fighting for the Faith, that's a positive thing, you know, because everyone's into the Wiffum mentality. <clears throat> what's Wiffum? Well, Wiffum is what's in it for uh, me. Anyway, uh, moving along to email here. Uh, this first one is not really an email. It actually is a comment left for me on my Facebook wall. That's right. If you would like to be my friend at Facebook, I'm a friendly guy generally, and uh, as long as you don't abuse your privileges there at Facebook... Um, I think of uh, Susan Grody. She's a friend of mine there, and uh, she, she, I think she lives up in Minnesota. And uh, she, she's she got um, a gaggle of uh, children. And maybe that's the wrong word. She's got a lot of them, but uh, I think like 12, 13 children. She asked me one time if I'd be willing to come over and babysit for her. And, uh, you know, of course, um, yeah, that one made me uncomfortable. So, But I, I didn't ban her as a friend. <laughs> Susan Grody has... Continue to be a very good Facebook friend for me, even though she has asked me to babysit all of her children. And it did make me uncomfortable. It was kind of awkward. So, <clears throat> anyway, um, this one was left for me by Derek, and I do not know where Derek lives. Although, you know what, I could probably click on his name and, and take a look here, see if it says on his Facebook page where he's from. Bellevue, Washington. <laughs> Yeah, I have a firm grasp on the obvious there, don't I? Anyway, Derek writes, he says, Hey, Chris, I had to tell you, between you and Mark Driscoll, Christian music has been totally ruined for me. And then he gave me one of those uh, sad face emoticons. He said, This has been bugging me for a while, but I really have to do uh, to take issue with the notion that you cannot worship God with rock. At least 
That is what I took from you, uh, from what you said on July 23rd. I don't deny the vast majority of Christian music is just regular inspirational music with a Christian label slapped on it. Why is it that the rock genre cannot be used because of its origin? It, it seems that people are not glorifying God with music today, not that the genre itself can't be used. I'm under no delusion uh, th- that I agree with you on everything, but I'm curious to to for you to expand on this idea. Okay, <clears throat> here's the deal. I'm not saying it's impossible to worship God using rock and roll. I, the claim that I firmly believe is that rock and roll is not morally neutral. Okay, It's not morally neutral. Uh, the, what the saying out there is that the medium is the message. That being the case, rock and roll does carry with it, all just by its genre, its history, and what it stands for, a message all by itself. And so we have to be careful that um, when we're using rock and roll music to, quote, worship God. Now, I'm not saying that's not possible. However, that being state said, I'm not going to erase what I said. I want to I want to point this out. So much of the music that passes itself off as, quote, contemporary Christian music nowadays, I, my issue with it has nothing to do with what style it is. It has to do with the fact that the lyrics are so awful. I mean, ugh, it, there's nothing Christian in many of these so-called contemporary Christian music songs. I mean, it's just, just some of it's rank heresy. Some of it, 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 there's so little content that it can't even be, you can't even determine whether it's right or wrong. It's more or less uh, some 7-Eleven mantra. What's a 7-Eleven mantra? That's seven words repeated 11 times. Ooh, ooh, Jesus, ooh, 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 Jesus, ooh. Or my favorite with the Christian rendition of you spin me right round, Jesus, right round, like a record Jesus, right round, round, round. Yeah, I, that's one of the early things we played here <clears throat> Fighting for the Faith. Look it up in the archives. So here's the deal. I did, though, read an article from a gentleman who, for lack of a better way of saying it, I don't have the exact same opinions that he do. And the reason I read the article, more or less, was to basically say, hey, look, at there's somebody out here who's speaking up against it. And he's got some interesting ideas. I'm not saying they're right or that his, everything he says is right or wrong, but it's interesting to see how completely out of step this guy is with the current uh, contemporary evangelical scene. And he was a rock and roll guy and a worship leader in that genre. That being said, there, there's not everything he said was spot on. So ultimately what it comes down to, what is it that would make a song appropriate to be brought into church for God's people and the body of Christ to use as a vehicle, so to speak, to worship and thank God with. First and foremost, you have to go to the content. If it's a 7-Eleven mantra praise song that you can't even figure out which God's being invoked, uh, more than likely it's probably not going to be a song that you that is appropriate for God's people to be singing in church. Just saying that. Now, if, if you want a more objective grid to work with, what I do recommend that you do is you go to tabletalkradio.org or tabletalk, yeah, yeah, tabletalkradio.org. Um, the, the Table Talk Radio, that's a Pastor Brian Wolfmuller and uh, Vicar Ege, Evan Gagline. They do a, a weekly program here at Fighting for the Faith. And on there, you can find the uh, the Praise Song Cruncher. 
okay, or Praise Music Cruncher. I forget what it's called. I think that's what it's called. And it gives what I would consider probably a great objective matrix for basically uh, critiquing a so-called Christian song to see if it really is Christian. Uh, These guys have done a fantastic job with it, and they've used the Praise Song Cruncher um, on a semi-regular basis on their radio program to review popular contemporary Christian music. And uh, not surprisingly, much of contemporary Christian music ends up not getting a very good score uh, once it's it's been run through the Praise Song Cruncher. So here's the deal. Ultimately, what it comes down to is, you know, the content of the lyrics. I grant that there's there we have some freedom as Christians when it comes to the style of worship, but before but before you just start rushing off and saying, hey, well, Rosebrook said you know we can have any any style we want. Keep in mind that not all style is neutral. And uh, not all that being the case, there's some styles that probably are not appropriate on the grounds that it does divide the body of Christ and uh, create a problem. Now, uh, here's the way I look at it, okay? The church, the Christian church, has the best music out there. It's so good and so radically amazing. And I'm talking about hymns at this point. It's so good and so radically amazing that it's completely illegal uh, on uh, MTV, and you're not going to get it on on uh, regular radio. Okay. In fact, it's so good, it's so specialized. The only place you're going to get it is a Christian church that focuses on Christ and the gospel and chooses to worship and exalt God in a holy, biblical, content-filled way. Okay. Hymns are not a, are not a uh, a liability to the church. In fact, good Christian hymns are one of the great strengths of the Christian church. In fact, here's if you look at the history of who have been the hymn writers, we're talking about people who have spent time actually studying theology. Who there? I mean, when you look at the great hymns out there, these are people. They are written by people who have a breadth and a depth of theological understanding. And it shows up in their lyrics in such a way that it literally focuses you on Christ and him crucified and has you singing the great doctrines of the Christian faith. This is not a liability. This is a strength. Why on earth would I want to exchange great Christ-centered, theologically deep and rich hymns for something that some... 13-year-old kid wrote in his basement that has seven words and is repeated 11 times. That, to me, would be the equivalent of literally, and I apologize, I know I step on people's toes. It's just one of the things I do. Um, That, to me, is the equivalent of exchanging gold and pure jewelry, you know, gold and silver for counterfeit money, or it's like casting your pearls before swine. Why would you do that? Why would you exchange something rich and deep for something shallow and counterfeit? That being the case, you know, Derek, I would, I would encourage you to continue to wrestle with this program uh, and to wrestle with these ideas. Why? Not because I'm always right, but it, it does sound like that you are taking some time to really internalize, think about, inwardly digest, and think critically about the issue of Christian music. That being the case, I think you're on the right track. I think you're on the right track. 
But again, if you're going to defend, you, you don't want to just create some kind of a carte blanche, you know, statement where you support uh, any and all Christian music. There are hymns that I will not sing because they're theologically in error. There are certain hymns that just didn't make the cut with the Lutheran hymnal for good reason. And those that had that were worth salvaging that did have aberrant theology in them, uh, our Lutheran theologians tidied up their lyrics and took care of the uh, the false doctrine. Again, I you know, church is the only place where you can get this good stuff. Oh man, the world has no idea what they're missing out on. We shouldn't be ashamed of our hymnody. We should take pride in it. And I mean, I mean the deepest kind of pride because that represents the cream of the crop, the greatest excellence that w- the Christian church has to offer throughout its entire history. And that's the other thing about good, hymn, uh, good hymnals is they don't just reflect hymns that were written yesterday. Yesterday, all my troubles seem so far away. Uh, no, they weren't just written yesterday. In fact, good hymnals will have hymns throughout all of the centuries of the Christian era. All of the hymns, you know, from, you know, early and ancient hymns to hymns that were written during the medieval period to hymns that were written during the Reformation to hymns that were written 100 and 200 years ago and even hymns that were written in the last century. Why? Because we, Christianity didn't just come spring into existence the day that you, quote, made a decision for Jesus. There's a long, rich history, and we believe in the communion of the saints, and so we worship the one true God with all of our brethren through all the different ages and all of the different cultures that Christianity has thrived and flourished and even suffered and, and been persecuted in. And their contribution to the Christian faith is every bit as important as the contents that can be made today. And so what happens is, is that the the... the, the the people who say, well, I don't like that style, and, and, and I want to sing stuff, that stuff that goes along with my style and the music that I like. Well, the problem is, is that contemporary music constantly changes. I mean, when I was a kid, I mean, it was uh, Duran Duran, Van Halen, uh, you know, groups like that. And nowadays, it's Beyonce and all this kind of – I don't recognize any of the music nowadays. And here's the deal. If you have, if you basically base your worship service on a particular style of worship, you end up alienating a whole group of people who don't particularly buy into that particular style of pop culture. Whereas good hymns transcend all of that, you know. And, and yeah, I, I, I'm kidding you not. If you and if you think, oh well, the younger culture is not going for it, you don't know what you're talking about. Attend the Higher Things Conference. Oh man. I mean, those are amazing teenage kids showing up and doing high liturgy and singing the hymns and getting so excited about it. They end up posting up uh, videos on YouTube of the of their of the worship of the depth of the worship that happens at these conferences. So, anyway, just just some thoughts on that. And uh, Eric, thank you for the email. Okay, got another email here. This is from Walter, and Walter is from Hanover, Maryland. He says, "Chris, I, I have a few comments about Perry Noble's sermon that you critiqued on your August third show." Outside of the fact of him missing the point and mangling scripture, <laughs> you know, outside of the big stuff, <clears throat> his uh, preaching style is annoying. <laughs> First of all, if, if you took out all of the rabbit trails and illustrations, his sermons would be real short. I agree with you. That's the one thing I do. I, I completely agree with you there, Walter. 
Perry Noble likes to talk about Perry Noble in much the same way that Rick Warren likes to talk about Rick Warren. And uh, his sermons have a tendency to drag uh, it because uh, he's always off talking about something about himself. Anyway, you're right. If he would just get, you know, take the air out of it. I mean, we're, we're, these would probably be like 10-minute sermonettes. Anyway. <clears throat> anyway, he says, secondly, by the time he gets to his point, I have almost forgotten his illustration. And thirdly, just listening to him, I feel like a worm because of his patronizing style. I have, I have noticed that too. It's like he's beating everyone with a bat. His sermon, by the time it was over, made me feel like I had to perform self-flagellation to win God's favor. <laughs> well, uh, Walter, here's the good news. God does not expect you to perform self-flagellation in order to win his favor. Your, God's favor has been won for you by Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for your sins. All of your sins have been forgiven. All of your sins are atoned for. And and all of your sins have been taken care of. In, and God's wrath has been propitiated in Christ. So no self-flagellation necessary. The good news is you're forgiven. Go and live in that great good news that God offers. All right. Here we go. Another email here. Hey, Chris, uh, Rob Bell wrote, We find ourselves in a place we haven't been before. Isn't that a ripoff of Rocky Mountain High from John Denver? He was born in the summer of his 27th year, coming home to a place he'd never been before. Hmm, does, <laughs> does mysticism automatically cover the crime of pl uh, 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 plagiarism? You know, um, got to say this, uh, Dave, not sure you've m quite made the case there that Rob Bell is guilty of uh, plagiarizing Rocky Mountain High. If you can provide some more evidence, though, I, this is very interesting and at least worth pursuing. All right, we're up on our first break. have some bills that we need to pay. And uh, need to remind you, if you'd like to email me, you can. Uh, my email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can follow me on Facebook or follow me on Twitter. My name there is Pirate Christian, and we send out subversive microblogging tweaks on a regular basis. And you can see other people taking pot shots at me. It's all so fun. <coughs> we'll be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> it's Marty Python. Circus Church. Hello. I wish to register a complaint. Uh, we're closing for lunch. Never mind that, my lad. I wish to complain about the sermon that I purchased a day ago from this very boutique. Uh, yes. Uh, what, what's wrong with it? I'll tell you what's wrong with it, my lad. It's a dead sermon. That's what's wrong with it. No, not possible. You just preached it wrong. Look, matey. I know a dead sermon when I preach one. And I know that the sermon I preached yesterday was certainly dead. 
Jesus Christ wasn't mentioned once, not even in the footnotes. No, no, you just weren't charismatic enough. Remarkable sermon, beautiful imagery. The imagery don't enter into it. It's stone dead. No, 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 no. You're just not open-minded enough. All right, then. If it's not dead, then I should be able to preach the gospel. I read a portion of it. Ahem. And then the camp counselor told all of the woodland creatures to become more righteous so that they, too, could get to the place called heaven. You, you see what I mean? This is ridiculous. There. I found the gospel in the sermon. No, you didn't. That was you just writing the word gospel on the cover of the room temperature sermon. Well, I never. Yes, you did. I, I never, never did anything. This entire sermon fails to preach anything that's worth anything to anyone. Now, that's what I call a dead sermon. No, no, no. You haven't looked deep enough into yourself. You must be joking. Well, you're just being divisive, and you refuse to accept the message that's being presented. Um, Now, look. Now, look, mate. I've definitely had enough of this. That sermon is definitely rotten. And when I purchased it not but a day ago, you assured me that it was Christ-centered, cross-focused, and filled to bursting with the gospel. Well, if you would just read the title. Read the title? What kind of title is this anyway? Super Spiritual Happy Fun Friends Adventure Camp Pack. Well, this particular sermon is designed to draw large audiences, and that's what you said you wanted. It has lovely imagery. Look, I took the liberty of examining this sermon after I preached it, and I discovered the only reason why I bought it in the first place was because it had been put into the wrong sleeve package. Well, of course it's in the wrong package sleeve. If I hadn't put a less suspicious cover on the sermon, you'd have had people chasing you just so that they can hear you preach it. Chasing me down the street? Mate, listen, people wouldn't be chasing me to hear this rubbish if I was firing midgets out of cannons. It's bleeding demise. You didn't buy the midget cannon expansion pack? The sermon has passed on. The sermon is no more. It has ceased to be. It's expired and gone to me and its maker. It's a stiff. Bereft of life, it burns in hell. If you hadn't put it in the wrong package sleeve, I would be using it for Firestarter. The thought processes that brought it about are now history. It's off the twig. It's kicked the bucket. The bleeding choir invisible wouldn't listen to this sham. This is an ex-sermon. Well, well, I I better replace it then. Let's see. Uh, Christ-centered, gospel, Jesus. Well, sorry, Squire. I've had a look around in the back of the shop and, uh, well... We're right out of well, whatever it is that you're looking for. I see. I see. I get the picture. I, I got a sermon here from Rick Warren. Does it contain Jesus Christ and his atoning sacrifice? Well, no, not really. Well, that's hardly a replacement, is it? Look, if, if, if you're really dead set on the whole Jesus thing, I suggest that you look up Pirate Christian Radio. All they do is talk about Jesus 24-7. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Pirate Christian Radio? Very well, I'll give them a try. Orthodox Christianity clearly teaches God's law, which condemns our sinful nature, and clearly proclaims the gospel of Christ's death and resurrection on our behalf to pay for our sinfulness. These truths of Holy Scripture are timeless and objective. However, a creeping fog known as the emergent church threatens to unravel these clear teachings by redefining the vocabulary and core beliefs of the Christian faith in terms of subjective personal feelings and experiences. That is why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to offer The Emergent Church, Undefining Christianity, a book by Bob DeWay that is widely regarded as the best book available on the emergent heresy. The book is $12.95 plus $4 shipping and handling, and all proceeds directly support the Christ-centered ministry of Pirate Christian Radio. Log on today to piratechristianradio.com and order your copy of The Emergent Church, Undefining Christianity. 
All right, we're back. You are listening to Fighting for the Faith. Warning. This program ain't politically correct. I step on toes. I say things that make people upset. I call lies what they are. Lies. So you just gotta gotta warn you ahead of time. If you if you're looking for a fluffy Care Bear type of Christian radio program, this ain't it. Uh, look up something on the Oprah channel that uh, <clears throat> will deceive you and send you to hell. But you might feel better in the short run. I need to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means your financial support is important. It's vital for us to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you and to other people. Believe it or not, one of the greatest way, a good way, not the greatest way, a good way for you to serve your neighbor is by supporting Fighting for the Faith. Fighting By supporting Fighting for the Faith, you support uh, not only this program, but the overall uh, programming of Pirate Christian Radio itself. And so by supporting us, you actually are serving your neighbor and helping to get the gospel out to other people uh, with, the, with the abundance of programming that we offer here at Pirate Christian Radio and the job we do here at Fighting for the Faith. You can support us a couple of ways. You can visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Yeah, that's right, fightingforthefaith.com. That's the home of our archives, by the way. And when you get there at fightingforthefaith.com, go to your web browser, www.fightingforthefaith.com. When the homepage pulls up, Find one of our friendly yellow donate buttons, and you can uh, send your gift in uh, electronically, securely, all of that right there online. Um, If you would like to do it the traditional way, you can make your check payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, got one more email here. This one's on tithing. Um, This is uh, Raleigh writing from... uh, from of all places, uh, it's Auckland, New Zealand. I've told you before, Fighting for the Faith is actually very well listened to overseas. Uh, we're well listened to in New Zealand. We're well listened to in Australia, South Africa, uh, Great Britain, um, you know, to name some of the countries, Japan and other places. So, uh, uh, Raleigh, we appreciate you uh, listening down there, and uh, we say a shout-out to all of our Kiwi listeners there uh, in New Zealand. Anyway, he says, by the way, he works for a a broadcasting group down there in New Zealand that, um, well, for lack of a better way of putting it, it uh, puts out a bunch of tele-evangelists, and uh, they have some very interesting ideas about money. That's kind of the background of this. He says, I've been listening with some interest uh, to your podcast, and particularly the debunking of Rob Bell. Thank you for the broadcast. Sadly, that sort of... Uh, Garbage uh, is prevalent te- teaching in many of our mainstream churches here in New Zealand. Yeah, unfortunately, uh, the United States has now become the number one exporter of heresy in the planet. <clears throat> anyway, he says, as you can see from my uh, the footer of my email, I work for uh, a broadcasting group here in New Zealand. In fact, uh, I head up our extensive technical team. I-, I am not, however, writing you with that cap on, but my own personal cap on, so to speak. I'm very interested in your side of the tithing debate. Now, I didn't realize it was a tithing debate, but apparently I'm wading into a debate by answering this email. So let me put on my helmet and uh, and uh, some chain mail here. And uh, there we go. I, I'm now suited up and ready for debate. Anyway, he says, have you made a podcast on the question of tithing uh, have, uh, available and how it should be rightfully applied today? I have seen many commentaries on YouTube, etc., exposing the likes of Benny Hinn, Joyce Meyer, etc., but none of these exposures give correct interpretation of what tithing is all about post-cross. 
I, I come from a, a traditional open brethren background, and so my views are quite conservative. But I do not, I do have an inquiring mind. I would love to hear your views on tithing stacked up against the other stuff that is taught by some of these uh, wacko televangelists. Blessings, uh, yours in His Royal Service, Raleigh from Auckland, New Zealand. Okay, Raleigh, you asked some good questions here, and uh, when what basically? Let me give you just kind of the overall arc of this thing. The the two primary camps, uh, when it comes to the, quote, tithing debate, if you would, uh, there's a, a, a legalistic and a word faith group that I would basically put into the same uh, camp. And then there's the other camp that looks at uh, tithing in light of grace. Okay, Now understand this, that tithe, uh, as uh, written for us in Leviticus, many have made the case, and I think they are, they are arguing correctly, that what we're looking at in in the mandatory tithes of the Israelites is that pretty much was their tax system for you know supporting uh, the government as well as uh, supporting the pre- the whole priestly system. You remember the people of Levi did not have an inheritance, and uh, therefore they actually had to make their living from what they were doing. And, and part of the tithe that, that was put together for the nation of Israel under the old kingdoms. Had you know, that money was used to support the the ongoing work of the Levites and their job uh, in at the temple and at the tabernacle. Okay, in fact, if you were to really calculate out uh, from the biblical the total uh, requirements outlined in the Mosaic law for the nation of Israel, their total tithe, if you would, came to about twenty three percent, not ten percent. It actually was about twenty three percent. Now that being the case here. Um, the question is, is that what's the proper way for us Christians? Okay, well, obviously we're not saved uh, by our law keeping, but that being said, what is the appropriate way for Christians to look at supporting ministry and uh, providing money to ministries, you know, since we are under grace and not the law? Now, that's really where the rubber hits the road. Now, what I'm going to do here, I'm going to <clears throat> pull out a couple of passages, actually some pretty long passages. If you have your Bible, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 is where we're going to begin. And I'm going to make this case, okay? Basically, here's what it boils down to. Um, <clears throat> since we have been redeemed by Christ and nothing that we own really has its origin in ourselves, everything is a gift from God, everything that we have, our home, our vehicles, our clothing, our food, um, our bank accounts, 100% of it belongs to God. And so the Christian case, basically the Christian idea from, from, from the theology of the cross is that we are transformed by Christ into new, create, into new creatures, and we do good works because of who we are in Christ. Okay, We don't do good works to become uh, the people of Christ, or you know, no, we do good works because we are the people of Christ. That being the case, 100% of everything we have belongs to God, and so I think the good way of looking at it is is that God provides us with you know with a job and with other things, not only to uh, to serve ourselves, but also to serve our neighbors. Okay. You get a job in order to provide for yourself and to be able to help support and and take care of others. Okay. Now that being the case, um, what God may be asking you to give is more than ten percent. 
he might ask he be asking you to give 30%. But here's the beef. This is where the rubber hits the road, if you would. The big error of the whole word, faith, legalistic approach to tithing is that, um, is that it turns tithing into a transaction. Let me say that again. The big error in the word, faith movement and those who have a legalistic view of tithing is that it turns tithing into a transaction and uh, where and it literally lays God under the law and turns God into your debtor. Okay? So the mojo is 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 uh placed on the tithing itself. You do the tithing, God is indebted to you and it's a transaction that you you know that you so you give in order specifically to uh indebt God to you and get from him. Okay? That's not what we see in scripture. God gives in order for us to give, and he gives us more so that we can give more. Okay? Let me back this up from Scripture so you can understand what I'm talking about here. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and we're going to be reading 8 and 9. So a couple of chapters here. First, we begin at uh, uh, verse 1 of chapter 8, 2 Corinthians. We read, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction... Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Okay? This is not where you normally start on a tithing... uh, in a discussion on tithing, but I think it absolutely is a good place to start if you're going to be talking about Christian tithing. What do we see here? What we see here is this 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 church, this church in Macedonia that is ridiculously poor and poverty stricken, and as a result of the work of the Holy Spirit in their life, granting them repentance and the forgiveness of sins, giving them a new heart raising them from the dead spiritually, all of the work of God, what, does, what do we see then? And complete overflow in their life to where what happened is, is that they were so radically transformed and so loved serving their neighbors in this way that literally you see them begging, begging earnestly uh, for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints above and beyond their means. Now, the word faith movement basically says if you sow a $56 seed, God is, is going to give you a speedboat. Again, the problem with that is that it makes God your debtor and turns tithing into a transaction. The biblical view of tithing is the same as any kind of good work or good fruit that we see in the Christian's life. It is a result of the new of the new person that you are in Christ, that Christ has made you to be. And it's a completely radically different way of viewing things altogether because it's a different way of being altogether. And that being produces good works. It produces, it does things. And what do we see here? The fruit of that is to where they were, these poor people were begging to, to give more. Interesting, isn't it? Okay, we continue. 
And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves firstly to the Lord, and then by the will of God they gave themselves to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Okay? So Paul here, remember, Paul, when Paul's admonishing Christians to, on to, and spurring them on to good works, he's admonishing them to act according and in light of the cross, in light of Christ, in the, in the gospel, and in light of who they are in Christ. We continue. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that, uh, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this manner I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he, he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. What is Paul referring to here in verse 15? He's talking about daily bread, the manna that came from heaven. And uh, you know when the children of Israel daily went out to gather the manna, uh, no one lacked anything. And so understand this. God provides you with material resources in order for you to be a blessing to others. That truly is true. And the difference between a legalistic view and a proper Christ-centered, cross-focused view, is that a Christian does this out of the abundance of, of the heart because of Christ and what he has done for us. Somebody who's a word-faith heretic, on the other hand, they give in order to get a Mercedes. They think there's some kind of law in place. They've turned this amazing, radically grace-driven thing whereby God blesses us and blesses others into some kind of a law and a transaction. I continue. Paul writes, But thanks be to God, who put into the heart of Titus the same earnestness, I, uh, earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to, uh, to you of his own accord. With him we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. And not only that, but he has been appointed by the church to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. And with them we are sending our brother, whom we have often tested and found earnest in many manners but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. 
So give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you and to these men. Now, it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints, for I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you also may be ready, as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge you brothers to go on ahead uh, to you and to arrange in advance for the gift. For you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. Okay, Second Corinthians 9, 5 really begins to turn here. Okay. Everything belongs to God. You manage it. You are a steward of it. Okay? And what God desires for a Christian is not that they act according to the law when it comes to their finances, but act in accordance with the gospel. Okay? And therefore, all right, when it comes to supporting ministry and other things, the important thing is, is that when you give, it's a willing gift and not an exaction, not something that you are forced or feel coerced into doing. Paul continues, The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Now, is Paul saying that, you, you know, that if you reap, uh, if you reap bountifully, you're going to, if you sow bountifully, you're going to reap bountifully? And by that, what does he mean? That, that uh, if you give money to a particular ministry or to a church, you're going to get a Mercedes Benz and a Gulfstream jet and a record contract with Simon Cowell? No. Again, God gives in order for you to give. We serve our neighbors with the, with the resources that God has given us. And so when you use the resources that God has given you in much the same way that the churches that he's describing have, giving generously and ridiculously and fighting for the opportunity to give more, then God will provide more to you so that you can give more. See the difference? <clears throat> we continue. So each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and, to the, uh, and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase in harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. Listen to that. 2 Corinthians 9.11 says this, You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. So ultimately the goal of all of our giving is, to, is so that other people give thanksgiving to God. Not our own glory. That's the thing. Yeah, think of it this way. Scripture tells us, uh, to ba in fact, Jesus admonishes us to have the, the, the faith of a child. Okay? And children at times can be ridiculously generous. It's, it's like the kid who gets the $5 uh, from his mom uh, uh, you know, for his birthday. And what does he do? He goes and blows all $5 buying ice cream for his friends. 
It's all kinds of fun. It's all kinds of fun. He doesn't even think about anything else. Much the same way that's what we're talking about here. It's a childlike, grace-filled, selfless way of viewing the resources that God has given you because greed holds on to things that God has given you and chooses only to enrich itself rather than to be a blessing to others. You see, that's the difference. For this ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission flowing from your confession of the gospel and the generous generosity of your contribution for them and for all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. So, Raleigh, I hope that answers your question. And believe me when I tell you, the Christian idea of giving and tithing and supporting ministry, completely different uh, than the law of reaping and sowing that the uh, televangelists have come up with. They've created a transaction whereby God becomes your debtor, whereas the gospel basically says God gives, has given to you abundantly more than you need, Therefore, give to others abundantly and let God be ble- let them be blessed. Let God be praised. Let him be glorified in all of this ridiculous generosity. Because that's what the gospel is. The gospel is God's ridiculous generosity to us. Undeserved, completely rank, wretched sinners. And God, God gives us this insanely offensive, complete pardon in Christ. And so his love, his gift, his mercy, his generosity to us through Christ and his resurrection, his death for us on the cross, then overflows in our life and overflows into other people's life, not only in the preaching of the gospel, but also in blessing them and caring for them so that there is no lack among the brothers because God has given us to give. I think that's the Christian way of looking at it, and I think that's the way of looking at it in light of the gospel. All right, we're up on our second break, and when we come back, we'll really quickly uh, take a listen. Uh, Tony Jones is speaking with Fork Tongue. We'll talk about that, and we'll bring you up to speed on uh, Andrew Deloach's uh, latest uh, rebuttal of uh, those people he's uh, debating regarding uh, the issue of homosexuality. And he asked the question, uh, is homosexuality, does, uh, homosexuality doesn't hurt anyone, does it? So we'll talk about that. And then our sermon review today will going to be, uh, oh boy, we're not going to get to this purpose one today. Ah, time. I'm going to scratch the purpose one until tomorrow. There's, yeah, you, you got to hear it. I'll put that on tomorrow. Our sermon review today is from a church who uh, did a sermon on, uh, well, the the latest Star Trek movie. So we'll be uh, listening in on that. So, all right, the second break here. If you'd like to email me, you can uh, talk back at fightingforthefaith.com. That's talk back at fightingforthefaith.com. Or look me up on Facebook or follow me on Twitter. My name there is Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. 
You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Avastar, it be too late to alter course, mateys, and there be plundering pirates lurking in every cove, waiting to board. Sit closer together and keep your ruddy hands inboard. That be the best way to repel borders. And mark well me words, mateys. Dead men tell no tales. <laughs> Orthodox Christianity clearly teaches God's law, which condemns our sinful nature, and clearly proclaims the gospel of Christ's death and resurrection on our behalf to pay for our sinfulness. These truths of Holy Scripture are timeless and objective. However, a creeping fog known as the Emergent Church threatens to unravel these clear teachings by redefining the vocabulary and core beliefs of the Christian faith in terms of subjective personal feelings and experiences. That is why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to offer The Emergent Church, Undefining Christianity, a book by Bob DeWay that is widely regarded as the best book available on the Emergent Heresy. The book is $12.95 plus $4 shipping and handling, and all proceeds directly support the Christ-centered ministry of Pirate Christian Radio. Log on today to piratechristianradio.com and order your copy of The Emergent Church, Undefining Christianity. Um, uh, All right, we're back. Hour number two, Fighting for the Faith, straight ahead. Looking at my program notes here. All right. Got to talk about Tony Jones, and we'll talk a little bit about Andrew Deloach. Made an executive decision since I got a little long-winded today on the email. We're going to move our Guess Who's Discovered the Message of Purpose. We're going to move that segment to tomorrow. So if you're looking forward to that, you have to tune in for Friday's program in order to hear it, uh, it's very interesting stuff. Anyway, I wanted to do this on the on the big program. I did kind of a mini fighting for the faith earlier today, and uh, that it had to do with um, uh, Tony Jones. He apparently is uh, speaking with forked tongue. I, that's uh, probably the best way that I could put it. it. He's talking out of both sides of his mouth. Now, if you remember yesterday... We talked about Tony Jones's blog, and on his blog he had an honest question about gays in the church. Let me read again what he wrote because it's really short. He says, okay, I'm serious about this. I'm not even being snarky. Really? If you're one who thinks that homosexual sex is sinful, can you please explain to me why a gay or lesbian person who is in a long-term monogamous relationship would not be able to wholeheartedly follow Christ? My only stipulation is this. You may not quote one of the six verses in the scripture that mentions homosexuality. Instead, you must use theological and or philosophical arguments to attempt to convince me uh, that when you have genital contact with someone of your own gender, it somehow inhibits your relationship with Christ. Now, we talked about this yesterday, how it's ridiculous you know, to basically say we're going to discuss this as being a sin, but you can't, talk, you can't bring any of the passages of scripture up that mention it as a sin. Instead, we have to use philosophical arguments. Now, this um, sent me uh, into the archives of Fighting for the Faith, uh, into the misty archives of Fighting for the Faith, and I remembered that we did a segment 
on Fighting for the Faith, where uh, Tony Jones was on the One One Radio program. That's John Chisholm's program, and uh, he gave his reasons why he rejects uh, the doctrine of original sin. Now, his reasons are very interesting and actually prove the point that I think this guy's talking out of both sides of his mouth. Here's uh, that quote. It's about a 30-second soundbite, so listen carefully. I think this is going to become readily apparent really easily as to what's going on here. Here we go. Here's Tony Jones. The actual doctrine of original sin as it was developed by Augustine and reified by, not particularly by Calvin, but by those who came after Calvin by about 100 years, in the who developed five point Calvinism and the Westminster Confession and things of that. Notice he's claiming that uh, Augustine and uh, later people developed the doctrine of original sin. He's denying biblical uh, a biblical genesis for that doctrine. Just want to point that out. Now listen to why he rejects it. Listen carefully. Here it comes. That nature. I do not think it's a biblical. I, I think it's a. I think it's based on Platonic philosophy and cosmology what well, you think that uh, the, the doctrine of original sin is based upon philosophy now remember what i just read tony jones wants people on his blog to debate or discuss or <clears throat> hang on a second let me make sure i got the right terminology here to have an emergent postmodern conversation about whether or not homosexuality is a sin and he wants you to base it to focus the conversation using only philosophy. Isn't that a bit odd, don't you think? Think of it this way. Tony Jones rejects the doctrine of original sin because he thinks it's tainted by philosophy. That's on the one hand. And then on the other hand, he wants to have a conversation about uh, whether or not homosexuality is a sin, and he doesn't want to base it on the Bible. He instead wants to base the conversation on philosophy. I do detect that this white man is speaking with a forked tongue. Uh, definitely got some problems there, and uh, and this is just ridiculous. Makes you think that uh, maybe he's not really dealing with uh, gleaning truth from God's word, but pretty much uh, picking and choosing what he wants to believe and how he supports it. So Tony Jones can apparently be persuaded using philosophy, but not the clear word of God. Yet he rejects the doctrine of original sin, claiming that it's philosophical and not grounded on the word of God. Hmm. Anyway, that's why I thought I'd point that out. Now, we've been uh, chronicling or kind of following uh, 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 Andrew DeLoach's blog. And uh, he has a funny way of spelling blog, by the way. B-L-A-W-G. Blog, man. (laughs) And uh, he... Tony, uh, anyway, Andrew Deloach basically made the case uh, yesterday. We read uh, we read his reasoning on this that these guys are basically picking and choosing what they want to be sins, and he did a reductio ad absurdum using thievery or, or stealing, basically saying that uh, he, he'd say he'd like to ask Tony a question. He says, "If you are one who thinks that uh, uh, you know that the stealing is a sin, you know, can you can you?" Let's discuss this without you mentioning the 34 verses in Scripture that say that stealing is a sin, okay? Well, of course, that's all part of a now 
you know, part of an ongoing emergent postmodern conversation. And uh, Andrew Deloach, who has a program here at Pirate Christian Radio entitled Take the Stand, which airs uh, 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 on Monday or Tuesday. Hang on a second here. I don't want to give false information about when his program airs. And uh, that being the hang on, I got to make sure I've got his uh, I'm getting old. (laughs) I do the production work here at Pirate Christian Radio, and I don't even remember what day his program Airs. I'm sure I'm going to get an email about this. Sorry, Andrew. I just don't want to give out misinformation. That's right. It's on Tuesday mornings. In fact, he's, he starts off our broadcast day on Tuesdays at uh, 9 a.m. Pacific or 12 uh, noon Eastern. Take the stand, Andrew Deloach. And he just got back from France. So he's he's really heady into Montgomery and, and uh, <laughs> right now. Anyway, so... The, the the Pomo people over at uh, <clears throat> Tony Jones's blog have chimed in. Three of them basically making the argument, but homosexuality doesn't hurt anyone. And remember, this is supposed to be a, quote, philosophical argument. And Deloach is not allowed to bring up the, uh, <clears throat> how shall I say, the, the six verses that mention homosexuality as a sin. I think he's broken that rule already. But let me, I want to read you his response and here's what he says. The name of it is, But Homosexuality Doesn't Hurt Anyone. In response to Tony Jones's blog post about homosexuals in the church, I, that would be Andrew Deloach, uh, replied yesterday by merely replacing homosexual with thief. The point of this argument was to demonstrate that those who advocate the non-sin of homosexuality must necessarily also argue the non-sin of theft. In other words, if Tony Jones's arbitrary exclusion of homosexuality from the category of sin is correct, we must also conclu- exclude all other th- things identified in Scripture as sin. As I explained, uh, this becomes quite problematic for the, quote, queer inclusive Christian because Romans 1, 26-32 collectively condemns multiple sins, homosexuality, envy, murder, gossip, God-hating are all classified as dishonorable things which ought not to be done. See, there he goes. He just, you know, there he can't, he can't do it. He can't talk about it philosophically. That's exactly he shouldn't have to anyway. Now come now now come the defenders of Tony Jones's uh, J- Jones to challenge my conclusion. Of the three persons who replied to my comment, all three gave the very same argument. But homosexuality doesn't hurt anyone. About a thief, a thief has placed his or her own selfish desires above those of his or her neighbor. Basically, it hurts others and serves only self. Homosexuality, when acted on in a healthy relationship, equally to a heterosexual one, uh, other than the sex of the partners, doesn't hurt anyone and creates a loving relationship rather than one that devalues the right of another as thievery would. Here's another comment from a Tony Jones defender. I think it is part of Tony's point. It's easy to condemn other sins through appeal to the great commandments, adultery, promiscuity, child sacrifice, rape, slavery, subjugation of women, despise the acceptance of the Bible of some of these practices, etc., are all harmful, i.e. not beneficial, i.e. they do not show love to the other. Not so with homosexuality in the context of a committed, monogamous, lifelong, faithful relationship, because I believe... That God is fundamentally good. I don't believe he is capricious and makes laws just to watch people suffer. I believe God desires that which is beneficial and life-giving to people. And then the third uh, person said, Andrew's theft comparison is invalid because theft results in harm to the person stolen from. Same-sex marriage does not harm anyone. Oh, man. Uh, Anyway, I would challenge that. 
uh, I would challenge it based on this, basically saying it, it does does not harm anyone. Um, because God says it's a sin, it is punishable by God and is therefore subject to God's wrath. I think that uh, anybody who is in hell, um, as a result of their same-sex sin, uh, would strongly argue against the fact that it doesn't hurt anybody. Secondly, um, that being the case, because it's a sin, it's contrary to, to nature and it's contrary to God, the way God designed us. Heter- homosexuality is ultimately dehumanizing. Every bit as dehumanizing as rape, every bit as dehumanizing as adultery, every bit as dehumanizing as uh, incest and things like that. Why do I say that? Because ultimately the real definition of what a human being is is found in really in Adam and Eve prior to the fall. That's what humans really are supposed to be like. Anyway, we continue. Anyway, Andrew says, according to these three uh, responses, my conclusion is invalid because theft hurts other people, whereas homosexuality hurts no one. Uh, But this argument fails without ever getting off the ground. As we lawyers are fond of saying, the claim is totally without merit. So that started with you lawyers. Okay. Anyway, why? Well, and and this should be uh, patently self-evident, this argument completely neglects the biblical meaning of sin. If we are to believe these three respondents, sin is characterized as that which causes harm to another person. That's, he's right. That they've redefined sin as that which causes harm to another person rather than that which transgresses God's clear commands and laws. <clears throat> Thus, the claim that uh, theft can remain a sin while homosexuality can now be removed from the biblical category, never mind the problem of the remover instructing God on which sins are no longer sins. Uh, though one may reasonably ask whether God has ever uh, ceded his authority in such a way. <laughs> the problem is clear. The Bible nowhere defines sin in this way. In fact, it takes a more cursory glance uh, if it takes a more cursory glance at Romans 1, 26-32 to see that the case is quite the opposite. The glaring fact here is that Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has expressly grouped these things together and called them all, quote, dishonorable. Uh, dishonorable things which, quote, ought not to be done. There's absolutely no qualitative difference. Paul makes no distinction between those things which do harm uh, to others and those which cause no harm to others. We see the very same treatment in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, which states, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And again, 1 Timothy 1, 9-10, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and for the disobedient, for the ungodly, the sinners, for the unholy, the profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Deloach continues, he says, Now let us make the error, let us... Make the error of Tony's defenders especially clear. According to the foregoing passages, the following are classified by Scripture as sin. The list is as follows. Homosexuality, unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, envy, murder, strife, 
deceit, gossip, slander, hatred of God, insolence, haughtiness, boastfulness, disobedience to parents, sexual immorality, idolatry, adultery, theft, greed, drunkenness, enslavement, lying, and perjury. Now, let's apply the paradigm proposed by Tony Jones and his defenders. A thing is not a sin if it does not harm, cause harm to another person. Thus, we are left with the following list. Okay, homosexuality apparently doesn't cause harm to a person. Unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, which has to do with intent, not action. Envy, hatred of God, haughtiness, boastfulness, idolatry, greed, and drunkenness. Back we come to my original argument. If homosexuality cannot be called sin because it harms no one, then Tony Jones and his defenders had better be prepared to argue that malice, greed, idolatry, and the remainder of the list are likewise not sin. They had better be prepared to explain why a covetous God-hater can wholeheartedly follow Christ and have no concern that his hatred of God somehow inhibits his relationship with Christ. Oh, Andrew, did you twist that knife when you plunged it in? Great job, by the way. Good good stuff. <clears throat> I have a difficult time imagining Tony and his defenders standing before the bench-slash-throne of the judge and savior trying to make the case that their idolatry should be completely disregarded because it causes no harm to another person. It seems to me all the wiser to simply trust the clear word of God rather than to tell God that his word doesn't really mean what it says. <laughs> good good post i'll you know i'll put a link up to that at uh, facebook and twitter so uh, it's called but homosexuality doesn't hurt anyone and uh, we'll put a link up to, up uh, for that uh, later on in the program anyway if we're going to switch gears one more time it is our number 2 here at fighting for the faith and you all know what that means right well it's uh, time for our sermon review here at uh, fighting for the faith and there's our sermon review update music That's right. From the good, the bad, the ugly, we, uh, well, we review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. Good, bad, ugly. Yeah, we've, we've seen it. <laughs> we've seen it all, I think. Now, today's sermon is a bona fide sermon supposedly based upon the brand new uh, Star Trek movie. Yeah, that's uh, what it purports itself to be. And so, uh, <laughs> it's going to be all kinds of fun. That's right. The uh, seeker-sensitive guys, the uh, purpose-driven guys, they have a lectionary. Yeah, what's a lectionary? That's a standard uh, reading rubric that you follow year after year after year. And during the summertime, it is now tradition... That's right. I use the word tradition, and I stand by it. Why? Because I just saw, I literally saw a promo video for one church uh, for their summertime movie series. And the video promo said, Summer at the Movies 6. Yeah, that's right. For six years in a row, they've had the tradition. Let me use that word again. Tradition of preaching on movies uh, rather than the word of God. And yeah, I did mean to say rather than because it's ridiculous. Hey, enough of that music. Sorry, I had to stop it there. So uh, without any further ado, we're going to dive into our sermon review. This one is um, uh, God of the Movies Part 2. It's on Star Trek. It's by Pastor Louis uh, Chanchola, and it's uh, Cornerstone Church. uh, I'll look up the... uh, the, uh, 
city uh, while the while this is playing here. But without any further ado, here we go. Gone at the movies. Uh, Trekkies that we got here this morning. Any Trekkies? We got any Trekkies? Anybody else? All right, good deal. I'm glad we have some Trekkies in the in the in church today. I I myself am not a Trekkie. Uh, when you were growing up, you're either uh, it was one or the other. It was either Star Wars or Star Trek. Very few people I know like both. You like one or the other. I'm I'm definitely a Star Wars guy, but I got to give it up to Star Trek for the movie they came out with. Boy, they took it to a whole other level, man. It looks it's an amazing movie, amazing graphics, just amazing special effects, everything about it. But I love the 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 origin of where Star Trek came from. I love the idea that they're on a trek, they're on a journey. And, and even if you're not a Trekkie, even if you don't follow Star Trek, it's a popular uh, enough American icon that, that there's basically two models, two slogans that come from Star Trek. And uh, even if you're not a Trekkie, you probably know the slogans, you know the mottos. All I have to do is this, and you know one of them, right? What is this? Live long and... Live long and prosper. That's right. That kind of sounds like a Bible verse. Not a Bible verse, but it kind of... Uh, no, that does not sound like a Bible verse. <clears throat> Live long and prosper? What Bible are you reading? Anyway, the, by the way, the, the pastor, the, is uh, his name is Louis uh, Canchola, and he is the lead pastor there at Cornerstone Church in McAllen, Texas. Yeah, that's right. Cornerstone Church in McAllen, Texas. And uh, he's just made the claim that the the Vulcan phrase, live long and prosper, sounds like a Bible verse. I'm not familiar with that one. Kind of sounds like one, right? Live long and prosper. And the other one was to boldly go where no man has gone before, right? To boldly go where no man has gone before. I love that. It's all about new experiences, going into new worlds, meeting new people, to boldly go and explore, to boldly go where you haven't been, to boldly go where you haven't gone before. You know, I think that's exactly a, a, a great description for the life God wants us to live. What? God wants us to boldly go where no man has gone before? Huh? Uh, <clears throat> Hey, uh, Louis, where'd you get that from the Bible? What what, what Bible are you reading there, dude? Down in McAllen, Texas? Do they have a different Bible than we do up here in Indiana? I think that's a great motto, a great slogan for the life God has called us to. That the Christian life should be about boldly going where you haven't gone before. Boldly going somewhere in your walk with Jesus that you haven't been before. You ever wondered why they call it a walk? How's your walk with Christ? And as you start, uh, by the way, just I gotta ask the question: um, Is the term "walk with Christ" a um, biblical term? Is I mean, walk with? Nope, I'm not finding that. Hang on a second here. Let's. Uh... <sighs> and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. You know the way he's used it. There's no passage in the New Testament that talks about our walk with Jesus. Or a Christian walk. That's kind of a modern phrase, don't you think there? Uh... Start knowing Jesus, and, and as you grow in Him, and as you get connected in church, it's one of the, the, the Christianese phrases that we use, right? You know, we speak Christianese. Again, nothing wrong with Christianese. It's just a little language. It's developed and among Christians and so on. And, and, and oftentimes you'll hear the question, how's your walk with God? How's your walk with God? And it's like, what, what do you mean, my walk, my walk with God? What, what are you talking about? It just talks about your journey. 
how you how you doing with the Lord? How you growing in the Lord? How how's your walk with God and so on? And uh, you know, uh, you, you you'll hear things like, "Where's God? What's God showing you lately? Where's God taking you?" And you're on this journey with God. See, that's the great thing about our faith. One thing that we try to 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 to, to share with everything that we can and to teach you is that it's not simply about praying a prayer uh, of confession to God and then and then that's where it stops. That's the beginning point. Uh, you, you pray that prayer to ask forgiveness of God, but that's not the stopping point. That's the beginning point of now a journey that you have with God, a trek that you're on with Jesus. You're on this journey, and hopefully you're boldly going where you haven't gone before. Hopefully you are experiencing new things in Christ. You are ex- Got to stop there. I, funny enough, I tried stopping it earlier, and the tape kept going. My computer was chewing on something. Not sure what it was chewing on. Oh, boy. There's an example of somebody who basically says the forgiveness of sins is the starting point, but we got all other, a whole bunch of other stuff we got to... Hmm. Boy, we got problems here already. I can detect them. Uh, what is God showing me lately? Well, that uh, pastors who preach like this aren't biblical. Yeah, just the thing I've noticed in my walk with Christ lately. Experiencing new things in your walk. You are learning new things in your life as you journey through this life with Jesus. As you go on that Star Trek. As you take that, that, that step. As, <laughs> notice the Star Trek allusion there. As you go through the journey through the Star Trek. <laughs> yeah, see, we're being relevant. Step. I mean, you think about it. If you, if you look at the Gospels... And you study the life of Jesus Christ. I'm talking about basically, whenever you hear somebody say the Gospels, that's for the first four books of the New Testament. Uh, the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Luke, and the Gospel of John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels. And in those four books, you see the life of Jesus as he lived on this earth in his public ministry the last three years of his life. The last three years of his life. And it's amazing to see as Jesus was walking day in and out, he had 12 men that were following him. We know them as the disciples, right? And he had 12 disciples that followed him. And I love reading the Gospels and reading through the life of Christ, studying the life of Christ, because every day is something new. Everything was, 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 every day was a new experiment, a new journey, a new miracle. Something amazing was happening. And I I put, um, wow, that's a pretty shallow analysis of the, uh, gospel narratives. Wow, something new happened every day. It was just... Uh, do you think that the Gospels were written so that you'd sit there and go, Wow, something new happened every day with Jesus. It was an exciting journey. <clears throat> yeah, that's... um. You're not telling me anything there at all about the content of what the Gospels actually teach. Huh. <sighs> put myself in the sandals of the disciples and I'm thinking, man, it must have been fun to follow Jesus those three years because you never knew what was coming next. Uh, which of the uh, the disciples or apostles talked about the fun of following Jesus? You know, I'm, I'm asking the question because, you know, you read some of the stories and they were quite harrowing at times. Uh, you know, demoniacs with chains and then, you know, pigs being, you know, possessed by demons and falling over a cliff. And then you've got these uh, travels across the Sea of Galilee when storms come up, Jesus walking on the water. And, you know, fun is not really the the word that comes to my mind when, anyway. 
<sighs> that's all right. It's all about star tracking, remember? To boldly go where no man has gone before. That's the metaphor for the Christian life. <sighs> I imagine that the disciples will wake up in the morning. Uh, did you hear those important words? I imagine. Yeah. Um, Got to be careful with those words. Uh, because your imagination does not constitute the content of biblical teaching that really is appropriate or should be taught from a Christian pulpit. Just, you know, got a little you know, flag on the play there. And, and that they'd be thinking to themselves, I wonder what he's going to do today. I wonder what he's going to do today. Because every day with Jesus, it's a new adventure. Every day with Jesus, we're pretty much going somewhere we haven't been. We're seeing things we've never seen before. We're that this does not describe my life at all. <laughs> Everywhere we're going, some every day we're going somewhere new. Which is every day it's something, it's some great new adventure. No, I'm happy to say that Christ has made my life to be very predictable. Rather, I rather enjoy the daily routine. I, adventure in my life is disruptive. I'm not in. I'm not looking forward to new adventures. I'm just looking forward to serving Christ and serving you all in the daily routine that I have here at Fighting for the Faith. Hmm. We're experiencing things we've never experienced before. And so I imagine they must have woken up day after day thinking, I wonder what he's going to do. Yes, there we go again. He's uh, preaching his imagination. I imagine that, uh, I imagine that your imagination is completely out of bounds. We do not do freewheeling or off-roading while preaching from a Christian pulpit. Your imagination could care less about what you imagine. Could care less. It has nothing to do with God's word, so stop imagining things and actually preach the word and tell us what it really there says there, Louis. What's going to do today? What about us? Do we live that way? Do we live that way in our faith with Jesus? Do we, do we wake up thinking, man, I wonder what he's going to do today? Am I wrong? Am I sinning if I don't? Is that the problem that you're going to solve here, Louis, in this sermon? People waking up and not asking the question, what's he going to do today? Again, where is this great deep theological uh, question asked in Scripture? And where... I wonder what he's going to do in my life. I wonder what amazing things he's going to show me today. I wonder what miracle I'm going to see him do today. I wonder if I'm going to go somewhere today that I haven't been. And sometimes we're expecting it, sometimes we're not. But I wonder, do we approach our faith that way? Do we approach life that way? Or for us, is it more like, oh, goodness, another day. Got to get through today. Got to get through this week. Oh, nothing worse than that that Eeyore attitude. Whew, yeah, that, whew, yeah. Christ died on the cross to save us from that thing. Got to get through another month. Got to get through another year. Just got to get through life. Did God really create us to get through life? Or did he create us to experience life? Why is it that I feel like uh, he's about ready to quote that passage from John, uh, I came to give you life and life abundantly. Again, quoting it completely out of context. I just, I feel it coming. Did he create us to, to enjoy the fullness of life? Jesus himself said, right? I've come to give them life and give it to them in abundance. Am I a prophet or what? Or maybe I just read, listened ahead. <laughs> Oh, man. That passage does not mean that to boldly go where no man has gone before. That's not what Jesus had in mind when he talks about an abundant life. Christ is our abundance. God is our abundance. 
Paul had an abundant life even when he was arrested and put in jail for preaching the gospel. Something to consider. That you would enjoy life. God meant for you to experience life, to enjoy life, to have life be a thrill ride and a journey of, of just... A- what? God wants my life to be a thrill ride? Dude, I'm old. I... I I could have a heart attack if my life is a thrill ride. They have warning signs on roller coasters. Roller coasters are thrill rides. You know, warning the G-forces from this if you have a heart condition could kill you. I don't want my life to be a thrill ride. No, I like the predictable and the mundane and the day in and the day out. It's experiencing new things every day and to boldly go where you haven't gone before. But are we just getting through life? Are we kind of just muddling through? Are we kind of just going through the motions? Are we kind of just hoping we'll survive another day, another week, another month, another year? Is it a sin if I do? When God says, no, 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 you're, you've missed the point. That's not what I've created you for. If uh, Where does God say that? If you're my follower, if you're a Christian, if you claim Christ, life is not about getting through. It's about enjoying the journey. It's about enjoying the trek. It's about discovering new things you haven't done before, and it's about boldly going where you haven't been. Okay, we are 6 minutes 20 seconds into this sermon, and we've only had one verse ripped out of context at that, the abundant life verse. Um, No, He's making these assertions about God. Notice there's all kinds of assertions. God wants you to do this, and God wants you to have that, and God wants you to experience this, and God wants you to experience that. The problem is, is that these are completely, uh, basically, mid-air assertions. There is no biblical foundation laid for making such claims. And being the skeptic that I am, I'm beginning to doubt whether or not these claims can actually be backed and substantiated from the scriptures. Uh, These are just empty assertions about God, nonetheless. And when you when you basically postulate empty assertions about God, are you speaking the truth about him or are you lying? It's a good question to answer. Boldly going where you have not gone before with Christ. You know, that's a scary proposition, though. Because for me to go where I haven't been before, that's going to involve risk. That's going to have, have take me overcoming some fear. And you know what that's... It's going to involve risk, and it's going to take you overcoming fear. Uh, again, can you back this assertion up from the Bible anywhere there, uh, Louis? It's going to involve, that's going to involve faith. Faith. But see, that's the whole point of our Christian walk, is that God would grow our faith. That He would put opportunities in front of us that are going to cause us to take risks and take chances for God's glory and take a step of faith. To boldly go where you have not been before. Do we approach our faith that way? Or do we approach our faith as something that drags us down? Do we approach our faith as just something that's there on the side? Or do I approach my faith like that? I wonder... Why do I feel like this is just a fabricated problem? wonder what God is going to do today. Because that's what the disciples went through. I mean, if you think about some of the conversations they must have had. You remember what Jesus did last week? Remember, we just we thought. Uh, notice he's not referencing an actual conversation that the disciples had about Jesus. He's just making one up and preaching it as if it's actually in the Bible. Just pointing it out. We were going over here, and then we ran into this blind guy, and all of a sudden Jesus spit into the dirt, and he rubbed the mud on the guy's eyes, and all of a sudden the guy could see. You remember that? 
Yeah, I remember that. How about that time we were in that house and it was packed out and it was crowded and all of a sudden we heard this noise coming from the roof and this they tore this hole this hole through the roof. Remember that those four crazy guys and they lowered their paralyzed friend down right in front of Jesus. Remember what he told the guy? He said, "Man, your faith has healed you. Take up your mat and go home." And the guy that never walked uh, you've meant you failed to mention the fact that he said to that guy, "Your sins are forgiven." That was kind of the whole punchline of the story. You might want to read your Bible more there, Louis. A day in his life, took up his mat, walked out of the room, and everybody had their jaws on the floor. You remember when Jesus did that? Wow. I wonder what he's going to do today. <laughs> wow. I wonder what Jesus is going to do today, man. Wow. Yeah, by the way, just want to hang on. You will not find this conversation in any of the four Gospels. Nowhere where you have the disciples sitting around going, wow, I wonder, <laughs> I wonder what he's going to do today. And when you start living your life that way and you start thinking about what is God going to do in my life today? It is amazing how your faith will go from something that is boring and mundane and something that is just there to something that gives life to something that has a hold of you in a great way. And to something that is causing you to grow in ways you never thought you could grow before. Think about the disciples in the conversation. What about yesterday? I remember yesterday we were kind of just, we were just following. Here we go. Another fictitious uh, dialogue from the non-existent gospels that he's quoting. Following him, we're walking on the mountainside and all of a sudden all these crowds came upon us and it was around lunchtime and everybody was hungry and we didn't have any food. You remember that? Yeah. And this little boy showed up and he had a couple of fish and a couple of loaves of bread and Jesus said some kind of prayer. And, and all of a sudden, there was enough food to feed everybody. We had leftovers. You remember that? Um, oh man, this—you know, this is even this is even a Cliff Notes description of these stories at all. Yeah, remember that man? That was cool. That was hot, man. That was wow. That was such an adventure, dude. Man, I just then that Jesus, man, he's the life of the party, man. You just never know what's gonna happen next. Wow. Yeah, man. Is because Jesus is all about us having these really cool experiences. Wasn't that cool? Yeah, that was a cool experience, man. Wow. I wonder what he's going to do today. That's what I've been praying this morning. I wonder what you're going to do today, God. I wonder what you're going to do today at Cornerstone. I wonder what amazing things you're going to show us and how you're going to challenge us to take risks and step out in faith. Here, here we go again. What is it with these seeker-driven guys and their insistence so that we need to step out and take risks you know because uh, the great sin of the christian church is that they they aren't risky uh, they're conservative and uh, and risk avoidance and, and really adept at avoiding risk oh, that's bad yeah you can't be avoiding risk you need you need to be risky what is where did this come from hey it's not in the bible you've got your bibles with you this morning would you open up to the book of matthew yeah, I can't wait to hear how you're going to support these assertions. Uh, Book of Matthew, Matthew. All right, I got it typed in. What chapter do you want me to go to? The Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 14. Uh-huh. Matthew chapter 14. And I want to give you a little background before we dive into these verses. I want to give you a little background of where we are in the story. It's what I just mentioned to you. Uh, the feeding of the, of the thousands on the mountainside with the loaves and the fishes has just happened. 
Jesus has just multiplied the loaves and the fishes. The disciples went out and went around being the, 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 the waiters and, and feeding everybody. And then they picked up 12 basketfuls, the Bible says, of leftovers afterwards. All right. And so that has happened. And where we pick it up now, Jesus now is going to dismiss his disciples to, to go ahead and go on without him. And, and he's going to uh, wrap things up with the crowd. As a matter of fact, let's let's pick it up there. Chapter 14. By the way, this is uh, supposedly uh, going to support the uh, the primary thrust of this message uh, from the Star Trek movie, Live Long and Prosper, or, wait, no, no, go, boldly go where no man has gone before. This is, yeah, this is going to support that assertion, to boldly go where no man has gone before. So I'm hanging at the edge of my seat here, dude. I just wish I had a big gulp and uh, had theater seating, but I'll have to do with what I've got. Verse 22. 22 all the way to verse 33. We're going to read all the way through to verse 33, all right? Right on. Matthew 14, chapter uh, 14, verse 22. Jesus has just fed the 5,000 on the mountainside. And look at what the Word of God says. It says this. It says, Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. The other side. The other side of what? The other side of the Sea of Galilee. The other side of the sea. While he dismissed the crowds... And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost! And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Father, it is our hope and prayer this morning that we would have the same experience with you. Uh, You're praying to God that we would have the same experience? So what are we supposed to do? Fly to Israel? rent some boats and hope for a storm and for Jesus to show up and walking on the water? Huh? I got to give him props though. He is reading from the ESV. That's the English sanctified version. The translation that I read from, you know, just had to give him some kind of credit. That over our next several minutes together, Father, that we would have a getting out of the boat experience with you. I, uh, <clears throat> ooh, ooh, allegory, da, 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 da. Yep, I'm feeling allegory coming on here. Um, we continue. That you would take us to places that we've never been before. That you would teach us things that, that we've never understood before and that we would apply them to our lives so that the end result would be what we just read, that we would worship you that we would worship you in spirit and truth, and that we would say from the bottom of our hearts that Jesus, truly you are the Son of God. 
We bring you praise this morning and we ask this prayer of you in your name, Jesus. Amen. So we pick up the story here and Jesus and his disciples have just finished feeding the multitudes, the thousands. And the Bible records that it was 5,000 that were fed on that mountainside. But as I've taught you before, biblical history and, and just the ancient history teaches us that they only counted the men back then. So there was 5,000 men that day, but there was also women and children. So really, the crowd must have been more around fifteen to 20,000 that they fed that day. Okay, And so they've just fed the people. They're done. The disciples have picked up the leftovers, and they're kind of just standing around, you know, wondering what Jesus wants them to do next. And Jesus says, y'all go on without me. Go and get in the boat and make your way to the other side. I'm going to finish wrap things up here. The Bible says that Jesus um, stayed and dismissed the crowds. What, is, what does that mean, dismiss the crowds? I mean... He, he stayed there and he dismissed the crowds. Well, I can imagine that after they ate, what, what was the reason the crowds were there in the first place? Well, they were there because they heard that Jesus could perform miracles. They were there because they had heard Jesus could heal the sick and give sight to the blind and make lame walk and make the deaf hear. They had heard all these things about Jesus, so they were all bringing their things to Jesus. And Jesus meets with them and he dismisses the crowds after he, he's meeting their needs and so on. And by this time, the disciples are on the boat. They're on their way to the other side of the sea. And Jesus, as he gets done dismissing the crowds, the Bible says, he went off and he prayed. And that blows me away. Because Jesus and his disciples have been ministering all day. They're ministering all afternoon. They're ministering into the... Jesus is ministering into the evening. And when he's done ministering to the crowds, what does he do? He goes and he prays and he's with his Father. He has communion with his Heavenly Father. And why did he go and pray? Well, because he's Jesus, man. That's what he does. No, 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 no. There was a reason to everything that he did. You know that, right? Okay, got to stop for a second here. Got to be careful. If you're going to tell me why Jesus did something, you better have a text to back it up. Uh, Because otherwise we're getting into pure speculation at this point. But let's see what he says. Just you got to be careful when you say, do you know why Jesus did something? Or you know why so-and-so did something? Listen carefully to what comes out next. Sometimes they can nail it and they can actually back it up from from Scripture, but there's only one way that we can know why, and that's if Scripture tells us why. <sighs> Jesus didn't just pray so it could look good in the Bible and we would pray too. Jesus had a reason for every prayer that he prayed. What do you mean, Louis? Jesus is God. He doesn't have to pray. No, no, no. That's the example he was setting for us. Because when he came to this earth, the Bible tells us in Philippians, he left everything to become man and become human. So he was 100% man, but he was still yet 100% God, as we're going to see in a moment in this story. He's 100% man, 100% God, and he has communion with his Father. He's praying with his Father, praying to his Heavenly Father, and he's praying for a specific reason. Well, what is that specific reason? Well, I believe the Bible teaches us here as it says that he, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to the other side of the sea. Well, this phrase, to the other side, if you look at the ancient languages, every time pretty much in the Bible that it's translated, it means going from a Jewish region to a Gentile region. All right? How many of you all know those two things are different? You're either a Jew or a Gentile, but you can't be both. All right? So he was ministering in a Jewish region. Now they were getting ready to go across the sea and minister in a Gentile region. I believe with all my heart that I got to stop here for a second. Um, Just right off the bat, I'm not sure if this is true. It could be. It might be a stretch. I mean, Jesus himself, I mean, barely did any miracles uh, or teaching among Gentiles at all. In fact, you think about the, uh, the, the 
the Gentile woman who who Jesus said he called her a dog. There wasn't a whole lot. Jesus himself said that he came for the for basically for the lost sheep of Israel. <clears throat> maybe, maybe not. I, I I'm just expressing a little bit of skepticism here. That's why Jesus was praying to God was to prepare him for this new ministry assignment. Jesus was always following the will of God. And God was now telling him, go to the other side of the sea. So Jesus had to pray and get prepared for his ministry assignment. What a great thing for you and I to realize. That everything about our life should be about prayer also. Say, God, guide me, direct me when it comes to any area. With my family, with my job, with my church. with." Oh, man. See, look at that. He insert, he eisegetes in the reason why and then extrapolates it out in a way that basically supports... Classic evangelical, you know, segmented theology, the, 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 the theology of the segmented life. <sighs> with my ministries, with my service, whatever it is, guide me in that direction. And so Jesus is praying to God. And he sent the disciples off. And he says, you guys get in the boat, make your way over there. I'll find my way over there somehow. Jesus, though, also is getting ready to, to teach them and show them something amazing. Because the Bible says that they get in the boat. He went up on the mountainside himself to pray, and when evening came, he was there alone. So there's nobody around him. He's just, it's just him and God right now. He was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. How many of you all know that when we read, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them, it's not just talking about some little breeze that was against them. They were in the middle of a major storm. They were in the middle of a major storm, and the waves are... <laughs> Yeah, I figured that one out. Yeah, got it. Beating up against the boat, and the wind is coming up against the boat, and these guys are struggling, and most of these guys in the boat are professional fishermen. It wasn't their first time around a boat. They, they, it wasn't their first time at sea. This is something they've done all their life, yet they are battling this storm. And the Bible says that by this time they were a long way off the land. We'll figure, well, how far away were they? Well, the sea that they're crossing is about four to five miles wide. Four to five miles wide. And I'm going to give him props, on, at least on this. He is trying to, to give us the historical, cultural background and paint us a picture. So he's, he's engaging in some exegetical work here. Got to give him props for that. It, it's much better than your average seeker-driven sermon. Although I'm not seeing a lot of Star Trek here. We continue. And, and, and experts estimate that they were about three miles in already. They were about three miles away from the land. I, you know, three miles, that might not sound like a lot, but it is when you judge that distance. So they're already about three miles out to sea, and they've been battling this storm and battling this storm and battling the winds and the waves. And look at what happens. It says, but, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And then verse 25 says, And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. In the fourth watch, what does that mean? Well, you got to understand, back then as the Roman Empire ruled the world, the Roman military divided the night, the 12 hours of night, into four watches. For their, for their guards, for their soldiers, and for their centurions, they, they each performed one watch each night of three hours. So that you had four watches divided into three hours. And it says that Jesus on the fourth watch went out to the boat walking on the sea. The fourth watch would have been the last watch of the night. So this was anywhere from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. that Jesus is walking out there. Now think about this. 
The Bible tells us it's around 3 a.m. in the morning to 6 a.m. in the morning that Jesus begins to walk out to the boat that's already three miles out there. When did the disciples leave? When were they on the boat? They were on the boat in the afternoon, in the evening, which tells us they've been battling this storm for about nine hours. They've been battling this storm for about nine hours. I don't know how many of y'all have ever experienced something like this, but they're, they're battling the waves, they're battling the wind, they're battling everything that's against them. They're tired, they're weary, they're frustrated, they're, they're, they're wondering what's going on, and they've been doing this for nine hours. Have you ever been there? Have you ever felt tired? Have you ever been frustrated? Have you ever felt weary? Have you ever just feel dragged down by what's going on in your life, and you're wondering, where, where are you? Where are you, Jesus? Can you imagine what the disciples were thinking in the boat? He said, wait a minute. Jesus sent us ahead. He's back over there. Why would he have done that? This storm was coming. Why would he have done that, man? We've been out here for nine hours battling this thing. Where is Jesus? And the Bible says that he's walking on the sea. I wonder what he's going to do today. I wonder what he's going to do today. Uh, man. Uh, that's the best. I wonder what he's going to do today. Whoa, good trick, Jesus. Bravo. Wow, I had no idea you could walk on water. Are those special sandals you got? Do you think they were expecting that he was going to be walking on water? No, they'd never seen that before. But it's amazing how time after time after time, when you study the life of Christ, he was always showing them something new. And it's my prayer that time after time after time. So the whole point of him walking on the water was he was showing his disciples something new. Is that the, the, is that the big gem and the, and the nugget of gold that you're digging out of the scriptures there? He's showing them something new. Oh, man. In your life with him and in your walk with him, that God and Jesus is revealing new things to you, things he's never done before, and he's showing you greater things that he's ever shown you before. And that's what he's doing here with the disciples. And, and, and they're going crazy. They're losing it. Like I said, this wasn't Peter's first rodeo. Peter's a professional fisherman. He'd been taught from his dad from the time he could crawl how to handle a net, how to mend a net, how to handle a boat, and how to fish. Peter knows exactly how to handle that, and he's freaking out. And all the other disciples are freaking out because the storm is overcoming them. And all of a sudden, Jesus makes his way on the sea three miles in to them. Pick it up here. What does the Bible say? Check this out. It says that in the fourth watch, he came to them, verse 25. He was walking on the sea. And then verse, pick it up in verse 26. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said... It's a ghost, and they cried out in fear. Now, you think about that. When the disciples, they see this figure coming, and, and, and you would think they'd say, Oh, yeah, it's Jesus. We're cool. Everything's great. They've been walking with him for years. They've been seeing the miracles that he'd done. But that's not their reaction. Their reaction is, What is that? Is that a ghost? I'm, I'm a little more freaked out now. Now, now let's give them some, let's, let's be honest, let's give them some credit. I would have reacted pretty much the same way. As a matter of fact, the sea could have been totally calm. Everything would have been great and peaceful. And if I see somebody walking on the water coming towards me, I'm probably jumping out of the boat and swimming the other way. So I don't, I don't knock them for reacting that way, okay? You think they'd ever seen anybody walk on water before? No, like I mentioned, a lot of these guys were fishermen. I'm sure they'd seen a lot of things at sea, but they'd never seen anybody walk on water before. And here comes this figure towards him. Now, what's amazing is if you study this passage... And you look at it in another gospel uh, that, that, that tells the same story. It says that Jesus was walking on the sea and he had every intention of passing them by. I, I, 
What does that mean? Jesus is walking on the sea and he has every intention of passing them by. Why? Why would Jesus be passing them by? If he sees them in trouble, he sees the boat struggling against the winds and the wave, why would Jesus not help them? Why did he have every intention of passing them by? Well, I believe the Bible gives us two reasons for that. Number one is we read in the Gospels that when Jesus is 12 years old, he knows exactly why he's here. And he tells his earthly mother, he says, don't you know that I must be about my father's business? And, and we know that Jesus had a divine appointment to get to the other side. So he's focused on that divine appointment to get to the other <laughs> side. Oh, man. So the reason why he was going to pass him by is because it goes all the way back to when he was 12 years old. He didn't see the, he, he was about his father's business. So that means that he, he had a divine appointment that he was trying to get to. He was late. He was commuting. He was to the other side. We know that could be one reason. The second reason, you know what? When you feel tired, when you feel weary, when you feel frustrated, when, when you're holding on against the storms of life, God wants to know, are you going to call out for me? Are you going to call out for me, or are you going to let me just walk by? Because, Oh, man, that is not valid at all. See, the reason why I was doing it is because, see, that's a lesson to you folks. You know, when the storms are uh, going on in your life, are you just going to let Jesus walk by? Uh, oh, boy, this is law light so far. Haven't heard anything remotely resembling the gospel, but we do have some more minutes left in this sermon. Let's uh, see if Louis lands on his feet. God says, I'm here. I know exactly what's going on in your life. But what I want to see is, do you have enough faith to call out to me? Because our life is all about faith. It, why is it? Do I? Why do I feel like he's turned faith into a work? Huh. Faith. When we show faith, it shows that we trust God. And so, when we're feeling tired, and we're feeling weary, and we're feeling frustrated, and we feel like we're up against it, God wants to know: Are you going to call out to me? And these guys call out to Jesus. Oh, man, this uh, that is not what this text says. That is not a valid interpretation of this passage at all. Jesus, and so he stops from going to the other side to meet their needs, to be there for them. And he stops to, 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 to say, hey, you know, I'm here. And what I love about this passage is, is that they understand a principle that we all need to understand. Look at what it says again. It says, okay, watch carefully. We're, he's going to dig out a principle for us. Those are, those are tricky things to get. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried, cried out in fear. And cry out in fear. What does this mean to cry out in fear? What type of fear were they crying out? Was this a good type of fear where, oh, it's Jesus. And, and you know, yeah, we're, we have a healthy fear for him. That wasn't the fear they were talking about here. This type of fear is the scary fear. They're scared for their lives type of fear. All right? That's the type of fear that, that they're feeling right now. Uh, I was sharing with the first service. I'm the biggest chicken in the world. I don't like scary movies. Never have. I don't do scary movies. Now, my wife, on the other hand, she loves scary movies. So she's always messing with me. And, and you know, she loves to mess with me. And, and I just don't like, I don't like that stuff. So, you know, if there's going to be any screaming in our house, it's going to be me. Okay? I'll, I'll, I'll... Uh, thank you for sharing that little tidbit. I'll do the screaming. I'll scream in fear and so on. Have you ever ridden a roller coaster like like these really nice super duper roller coasters that like they have a drop that makes you feel like your guts are in your brain and stuff like that? You know what I'm talking about? 
and you're scared out of your mind, but you're enjoying it at the same time. Okay. That, that, that's a great type of fear that, well, I'm really scared, but I know things are cool. That's not what they were feeling. They're scared. They're, they're screaming is a little bit different. It's a, uh, we're, we're, we're going to get killed type of fear. And Jesus comes along and look at what he says. They say, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. And, and, and this is something that I hope that we understand. When, when we look at verse 25 and we see Jesus walking, then we look at verse 26 and we see how they crowd in fear. There's a couple things that I, that I hope we don't miss here. Yeah, based on your creative interpretations, I'm sure you're seeing stuff that ain't nobody nowhere has ever seen before. Can't wait to hear it, though. As I mentioned before, they see something they've never seen before. Jesus is revealing something to them he's never revealed before. He's walking on water. Yeah, man, isn't that cool? I mean, oh, you never know what's going to happen next with Jesus, man. He, he was boldly going where no one's ever gone before. Mind-bogglingly, wow. Now, now first of all, don't, don't lose this and don't miss sight of this. I think sometimes we do. The wind is going crazy. The waves are going crazy. The boat is being tossed about like it's a rag doll. I'm telling you, I I can get a sense of this. I I mention this all the time, so I I hope I don't bore you again, but one of my favorite shows is Deadliest Catch. And I don't know if you've seen the show Deadliest Catch. Wait a second. I thought this was a sermon about Star Trek. You're now switching over to Deadliest Catch? Uh, Pull out the crab pots and uh, beam them up aboard the Star Trek. Oh, man. Alaskan king crab fishermen. These guys are something else. But what blows me away is that they're on these 125 long uh, foot boats, ships, huge. And sometimes the waves will toss it about like it's nothing. And, and I was watching a couple weeks ago, and this 40-foot wave hit this boat. And there was a guy on top of what they call these pods. And it just tossed him off like a rag doll, broke some ribs, shattered his eye, did a couple great things. Not great things to him, but, you know, it was, he lived, thank God. But, but the force of the waves is amazing. And this 40-foot wave just crashed over the bow of the ship and just tossed everything aside like it weighed nothing. My grandpa was a World War II veteran. He was a Navy veteran. And he served on the USS Shangri-La in, in World War II in the Pacific Theater. This big, um, big, uh, big deck, you know, huge cruiser ship, carrier ship would, would carry the planes. And, and, and I remember when I was little, he would tell me stories about it. And he, I remember, you know, my mom has shared stories that, that, that he shared with them about, about being on this carrier, this aircraft carrier, and just the sense of awe that he had for the ocean. He would tell me, he said, Louis, the, the ocean, the power that it has, you have to respect it. He said he'd be out there and there'd just be huge swells. And they're on this huge aircraft carrier and the waves, he said, sometimes we were at the mercy of the waves. The ocean is just vast and the ocean is just powerful. I hope you don't miss out on what we see here. That as vast and as powerful as the ocean is, Jesus is demonstrating his power over nature. He is the creator of nature. And Jesus is telling you and I that no matter how big the obstacles are in your life, I'm greater than those obstacles. No matter how much power those waves and that wind might have in your life, I have greater power than the winds and the waves. I have greater power than your circumstances. And I'm here for you no matter what, when you call. That's what one thing I hope that we get from this, that we don't miss out on it. Jesus is walking on the water. I think sometimes we read that nonchalantly. But Jesus is walking on water. And he's, <laughs> yeah, man, if you repeat it, it just sounds even cooler. Dude, Jesus is like totally walking on water. Whoa, man. 
No way, dude. He was like totally walking on the water. Whoa. He's demonstrating his power over nature and his power over the winds and the waves. You need to understand that Jesus has greater power than any obstacle or any circumstance in your life. But the thing is, is are you going to call to him? When you see him walking your way, are you going to call to him or are you going to let him walk by? Uh, The apostles didn't call to him. They went, ah, it's a ghost. Does that count as calling to him? And so Jesus is walking on this water and and, and, and here's another principle that I hope we learn from this is it says that the disciples felt fear. They cried out. <laughs> uh, so we're supposed to apply the principle of fear. They felt fear. I, oh, man. They out and they felt fear. You need to understand that fear is a natural response when God is getting ready to show you something in your life that he's never shown you before. There needs to be a little bit of fear there. But the fear I'm talking about is that healthy respect, that healthy fear for God. That says, God, you're taking me to a place I haven't been before. You're taking me to a place that, I, that I, I'm not sure how, where I'm going. But So there's a little bit of fear there, but I know you're with me. And he says the, they, they, they feared this. They feared this. That is a good indication in your life when you're sensing some fear that God is getting ready to take you to a place you haven't been, that you're getting... <laughs> oh, man. We're, he's telling me something about the text, and then he says something stupid like that. And see, you've got to understand that when you feel fear, that's probably the time when God's going to show you something new. You know. Yeah. You're getting ready to boldly go where you haven't gone before, but... Oh, th- uh, man. The... <laughs> Oh, the cheese level on this uh, sermon is really, really high. This is what I want to ask. Do we boldly go or do we go like, God, you're making me, you're making me go? Or do we boldly take the step of faith? Do we bo- Did the apostles, were they, the disciples, were they boldly going? If they had fear. Where, where's the boldness in their fear? Hi, hi, hi. Boldly walk into what God has for us. To boldly go where you haven't gone before. And so Jesus here is walking on the sea. And he gets to them. And they know God is up to something. This is a new one. <laughs> yeah, they know God. Hey, you know, it looks like God's up to something. Yeah, this is new. I've never seen this before. Maybe God is up to something. What a completely profound and deep interpretation of this passage from the Gospel of Matthew. Huh. Wow. I was expecting something, but I wasn't expecting him to walk on water. Let's see where this goes. <laughs> How is he delivering this with a straight face? Oh, man. Wow. And look at what happens in verse 27. It's a ghost, and they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. It is I, do not be afraid. He gives us two great commands in this scripture on how to handle risking for God. This passage isn't about risking for God. (sighs) He's just making stuff up. He's telling us this wonderful Bible story 
and every one of his conclusions just have they don't even touch the text at all unbelievable wow i've never quite seen it done this way before what see when 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 we believe god is calling us to an opportunity when we believe we're stepping into the unknown, when we believe it's a great thing. You can see, I hope you don't, you don't miss what I'm saying today. It's not just during the tough times when we feel weary and tired and frustrated that we're to call out to God. It's in every moment of our lives that we're to cling to God and call out to God during the celebrations and during the greatest moments of our life also. We are to call out to God. It can be those exciting opportunities, those exciting risks that we've been praying for and God all of a sudden is opening doors and now we've got to decide if we're going to walk through the door. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Good opportunities. Great. No, I really don't know what you're talking about because it has nothing. What you're talking about has nothing to do with the text you're reading. (sighs) You know, when you're actually teaching the Bible, you're doing okay. But when you try to draw the conclusions out of it, dude, where are you finding these conclusions? They're not in this text. Things that are happening, but you're still a little scared. Oh, my goodness. God, what if I do take that step? What's going to happen? Uh, God, you want me to plant a church? Are, are you serious? There's no way. I'm not a church planner. I, I, we can't, I can't plant a church. There's no way. God, are, are you serious about this? And he keep, I kept hearing God. I kept hearing God. I, I'd hear a message preached, and, and, and it could be anything that the preacher was preaching on. Louis, plant a church. Uh, I could have a conversation with... Uh, all of a sudden, your life, Louis, now is the standard... By, you're preaching from your life. Oh, man. What is it with these church planners that they are so obsessed with their story as if it's biblical? With Michelle, Louie, plant a church. I'd read my Bible in my quiet time, Louie, plant a church. And I'm trying to talk God out of it. And it's a great opportunity. I'm not convinced it was God telling you to plant the church after seeing how you handle God's word and the conclusions that you're drawing from this passage that they're not even there. Dude, I'm beginning to think you hear voices. And this is not good. You might want to go get yourself checked out. And it's a great thing. It's a great thrill. It's a great risk. Say, but God, what if I take that risk? What if I step out in faith? What if you do, Louis? Are you trusting that I'll be there or not? And I remember the very first conversation I ever had with Michelle about planting this church that I believe God was leading us to do it. I was scared out of my mind. And then I believe the very first conversation I had with my family. My parents, my sisters, I, I, I believe God is leading here. I remember the very first conversation we had with my in-laws. And instead of, you know, I, my, my father-in-law was going, yes, we're behind you, Louis. that's wonderful. How are you going to take care of my daughter and my grandchildren? That was my father-in-law's number one concern, which it should be. How are you going to take care of my daughter and my grandchildren? And my answer being, I don't know. I believe God is going to show up. I believe God is going to take care of us. And God never fails on a promise. And God has been there every step of the way. And every time as a church that we have journeyed together and we go through another door and we take another step of faith and we take a risk, God is there on the other side and God shows up. And it is amazing how that begins to build your faith. Why is Jesus doing this? Why is he showing this to disciples every day? Well, who was going to start the church on this earth once Jesus was gone? The disciples were. And so he's building their faith and building their faith and building their faith. So every time you and I have to take a step of faith, every time you and I have to have to step out and risk, we need to we need to count that as an amazing thing that God would trust us with that. And to say, God, thank you for challenging me with this opportunity. Find me faithful to step out and to risk for you. 
Because I know that you're growing my faith for a greater purpose. For a greater purpose. For a greater purpose. Is that how you see it? Or do you run away in fear? Oh, man. Why is it you seeker guys cannot, don't know how to actually preach the Bible? What is this pep talk you're giving us about taking risk? Oh, man. You know, by the way, your portfolio manager may tell you that you only may only want to apply a per portion of your portfolio to risk, and you might want to consider investing the higher portion of your por uh, your retirement portfolio in less risky adventures. And Jesus tells them, take heart. That's the first command he gives us. Take heart. Take heart. What, what, what does that mean, take heart? What does that phrase mean, take heart? You know what it means? It means have courage in the face of your fear. Have courage in the face of your fear. Christians, followers of Jesus Christ, why can you and I take heart? Why can you and I have courage in the face of our fears? Because what am I doing that I should be afraid of? <sighs> we know Jesus is with us and we know Jesus is on the other side, which is wherever the risk that we're, we're, we're going is taking us. Y'all hearing me today? All right. Yeah, I, I'm hearing you. I just ain't tracking with you, dude, because I'm not seeing any of this stuff in the Bible at all. Why can we take heart? Why can we have courage? Because we're with Jesus. That's why. Because what did he say? He said, take heart. It is I. Guys, I've been walking with you for several years now. Take heart. It's me. Have I ever let you down before? No. Take heart. It is I. And it's amazing. You study the, the phrase in the original languages. It is I. It's the same phrase that God used with the burning bush when Moses was standing before. Yeah. Ego in me. That is, it's his deity. When Moses says, well, who should I tell? Who should I tell Pharaoh sent me? He says, tell him the great I am. I am God. It is me. Jesus uses the same phrase, therefore marking his divinity again. He'd already shown his divinity by walking on the water, but he assures them again, and he uses the same exact phrase God used, I am is here. Don't worry, guys. You see the wind, you see the waves, you're scared out of your minds. Take heart because I am is here. I am is here. And when we're feeling that in our lives, and we're feeling uneasiness, and we're feeling fear, and we're wondering what's going on, and God comes to us and says, take heart because I am is here. I am is here. God is here. Do we do that or not? He says, take heart. And then he says this, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Why does God tell us don't be afraid? You know why Jesus told his disciples not to be afraid? No clue. Maybe because they were afraid? You, just a stab at the dark here, you know. Because fear paralyzes you. You ever been afraid of anything? Hmm? Could be something physical. Could be something mental. Could be a fear of relationships. Could be a fear of snakes. It could be a fear of this or a fear of that. A fear of commitment. Be a fear of anything. What does fear force us to do? I would like to remind you all. This is supposed to be a relevant sermon about Star Trek, the latest Star Trek movie. Fear stops us in our tracks. Fear paralyzes us. How many of y'all think God wants us to walk through life being paralyzed? How many of y'all think God wants us to go through this life? fearful and never doing anything and never accomplishing anything great for God and his glory. No, but fear paralyzes us. It stops us in our tracks and God tells them, do not. What? We're, we're supposed to do something. So every one of us is supposed to do something great for God and his glory. 
where does it say that in the scriptures? Just asking, you know, it seems like a logical question. <sighs> be afraid. I don't want you to hesitate when it comes to following me. I want you following me so close that my dust and my sandals is kicking up on you. As I've taught you before, one of the greatest blessings that they gave in the first century church was this. May you be covered in the dust of your rabbi which meant that you were following that rabbi that was discipling you so close that the sand from his sandals was kicking up on your clothes. And at the end of the day, you were covered in the dust of your rabbi. What a great thing that we would be covered in the dust of Jesus' sandals because we're following him so closely. But I guarantee you, there's, there's no way we can follow Jesus closely if fear is in the picture because fear causes you to hesitate. Fear causes you to freeze. <sighs> Uh, again, just simple question here. Where is this in the Bible again? Fear causes you to hold up. So many dreams, so many opportunities, so many great things that could have been done have not happened because somebody had fear and they held up on what God was doing in their life. Don't hold up. Don't let fear paralyze you. It reminds you of, of, of a coach who used to tell me that all the time. I, I would come off the, off the field and go to the sideline and, and the coach would ask me what I saw. And I said, well, I saw this and they did this. And so I thought this. And he said, no, 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 Louis, don't think. I'm here to think. You just do what I tell you to do. Why would he tell me that? Because they didn't want me hesitating. They didn't want us hesitating on the field. Because they knew when you hesitate, you're lost. When you hesitate, things don't get done. When you hesitate, the plays don't work. God knows in our life, when we hesitate, we're lost. When we, when we hesitate, we lo- we're lost. What about when we sin? You know, this is a fine and dandy so-called sermon, but I'm just not seeing any of the major themes of Scripture in this sermon at all. I feel like I'm being distracted away from the real Jesus and what he really said and what he really taught and what he really did. I feel like the more he talks, the farther away we get away from Jesus, and Jesus is getting farther and farther and farther. He's very small now. Maybe he passed the boat by, and now I'm afraid. He hesitate, things don't get done. And so Jesus says, don't be afraid. I am is here. I'm here. And this is what blows my mind. Go to the next verse and check this out. Leave verse 28. This is what blows me away. If you, if you look at verse 27, Jesus is saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And then look what Peter does in verse 28. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command I, I can imagine Jesus just said, Peter, what do you mean if it is me? What did I just tell you? It there is- we go again. I can imagine. I can imagine. I, is, is that in the text or did he just imagine that? I think he just imagined it. It wasn't really in the text. He just imagined it. This is obviously a case study in imaginative Bibles, translation, and stories. It is me. But how many times do we do that, guys? How many times do we pray for God to do something in our life? We sense God moving and we're asking him, God, is that you? Um, what if I'm not sure? Um, do I reach out with my feelings? Do I use the force? Uh, throw some dice? Um, you know, flip a coin? What do, man, what is this? God, is it you? If it's you, God, tell me to go to that college. If it's you, God, tell me to marry that person. Allegorizing the scriptures again. He's not really actually preaching from it. He's just allegorizing it, applying it a funky way to you. 
and me. This is bizarre. Person, if it's you, God, uh, command me to do this. And we've been praying about this. We've been seeking God. God shows up, and what's our first reaction? Is that you, God? If it's you, tell me to step out of the boat. That blows me away. But I want. <laughs> Here we go again. That that great interpretive statement. Whew, that blows me away. Yeah, that's that's some profound insight into the scriptures there. Yeah, wow, dude, man, that like whew, threw me. Uh, that threw me for a loop. It blew me away, man. Whoa. I want to share something with you. We can knock Peter for that, but everybody else in the boat was thinking it too. Everybody else in the boat was was just as afraid. Why? Because look at the next thing that happens. Peter says, if it is you, Lord, tell me to come to you. And he said, come. Jesus again verifies that it's him. And Peter says, if it's you, tell me to come, Lord. And Jesus says, come. And look at what happens. So Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water, and came to Jesus. Peter got out of the boat walked on the water, and came to Jesus. Peter boldly went where he had never gone before. Oh, cheesy tie-in to Star Trek there. See, that's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to boldly go where no man has gone before. Yeah, how'd that turn out for Peter, by the way? You know, as he boldly stepped out of the uh, boat, and did he run on over and give Jesus a big hug? You know, and say, hey, dude, what's happening? You know, give him a high five and a power punch. Uh, no, we continue. Hopefully he'll get to what happened there. And because Peter was willing to put it all on the line, because Peter was willing to risk, and because Peter was willing to step out of the boat when nobody else was, Peter got to experience something that... Oh, Peter's big reward. Because he was able to boldly go, he was willing to boldly go where no man has gone before, he got to experience that incredible reward of experiencing walking on the water. See, that's if you just you boldly go where no man's gone before, you too might get to experience something out of the ordinary, unique, out of this world, uh, from another planet. Ah, oh, man. That nobody else has ever experienced. All because he was willing to boldly go where he has never gone before. What do you mean he experienced something nobody else has? Well, check this out. It says that Peter got out of the boat walked on the water. Yeah, you've said that three times now. And came to Jesus. So many times I hear people say, Jesus is the only one that's ever walked on water. According to Scripture, Peter walked on water also. That doesn't make Peter God. I'm not saying he's God. What I'm saying is, give Peter credit for having the faith to step out of the boat. (sighs) Okay, reading the passage. Peter answered, Lord, if it's you, command me to come uh, to you on the water. And he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink. And he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took took hold of him, saying, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got out of the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. So is this really about the great reward of getting that really unique experience of getting to walk on water? Wow, we can give credit where credit's due, man. Is this a story about how great Peter's faith is? Well, because if it was, then why does it tell us that he sank? And cried out, Lord, save me! (sighs) 
See, 11 guys weren't willing to step out of the boat. 11 guys missed out on the opportunity to know what it is to walk on water. Not that that's any big thing. They missed out on... Oh, yeah. All the other guys are kicking themselves, going, Oh, man, I didn't get to walk on water. Man! Oh, man, he got to experience that, and I didn't, man. Do you really think the disciples were all about having these great experiences, that that's really the reason they were following Jesus, they considered it to be some huge reward that they got to experience it? By the way, the Apostle Peter, uh, he, when he was martyred, he was martyred uh, by uh, the Emperor Nero, and Nero ordered him to be crucified. And uh, Peter, when, uh, when he discovered that they were going to nail him to a cross and crucify him, he protested because he didn't want to experience the same death that Christ did. He didn't consider himself worthy. So what was their response? Suit yourself. We'll just crucify you upside down. Is that, is that different enough for you? You see, he had an opportunity to experience the exact same death that Jesus did. <sighs> On the opportunity to trust Jesus further. And Peter, the Bible says, is walking on water. He gets out of the boat while the other 11 are still afraid in the boat. And Peter learns a great principle that I've taught you before. Peter knew this. Peter learned this principle that day. It's better to be with Jesus outside of the boat than it better is to be, than it is to be in the boat without him. And I hope you realize that. Yeah, there, there's that principle there. Whew. Yeah, that's in the passage. In your life. It doesn't matter if everybody else stays in the boat. If God is calling you to step out, you need to step out. You need to boldly go where you haven't been before. Because it's better to be with Jesus where everybody else might not be than it is to be with everybody else where Jesus isn't. Are you all hearing me this morning? <laughs> what? And where, where is this place that we can go where Jesus isn't? I just am at a loss. This morning. It's better to be with him. And so Peter finds himself walking on the water and he takes the step of faith and that's a scary place to be. When you commit to it and you do it. Uh, you are going to tell us how he sunk and Christ said, oh, you of little faith. You're going to get to that part, right, Louis? And you find yourself in that place. You say, God, oh my goodness, I took the step. Are you going to show up? Are you here? God, we're actually launching this church. God, I'm actually saying I do. God, we're actually bringing our first child into this world. God, I'm actually going off to college. God, are you going to show up? And it's amazing when God shows up. And it's amazing when God takes your faith to another level. And it's amazing when God is growing you. And Peter gets to experience something nobody else did. Can you imagine as they walked and talked and shared how many times Peter after that, that night must have been asked by the disciples, man, so what was it like when you were out on the, on the water? Man, Peter, tell me, what, what did the water feel? Yeah, well, they all knew exactly what it was like. He sank. It, 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 he, it, I mean, he was the worst water walker ever. <laughs> and there's only been two. like. Man, man, what was that like? Peter's the only one who could describe it. Peter's the only one who could talk about it. Why? Because he's the only one who was willing to step out in faith. Now, yes, the Bible does teach us that what happened afterwards, and this is the danger of when you risk. If... 
Don't you think the thing you're going to be talking about right now, coming up just in the next few seconds, is going to completely negate the point you were making earlier regarding that, ooh, wow, he got to experience walking on water. Yeah, that was not a moment of triumph in uh, Peter's life. If you take your focus off Jesus, you'll begin to sink. Look at what the Bible says. It says that Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. So I believe with all my heart that when Peter stepped out of the boat and he took that step into the water, he had his eyes on Jesus the whole time. And I can just picture Jesus at that moment, just, just, just jumping for joy that Peter showed that faith and Peter's focused on Jesus. So Jesus was jumping for joy. So not only was he water walking, he was water jumping for joy. Not in the text, just, you know, trying to fill out the uh, the rest of this guy's imagination. We're getting a lot of uh, Louis' imagination in this sermon. Not a lot of valid conclusions from the scripture. This is probably the worst interpretation of this passage I have ever heard. And he's focused on Jesus, but then he does the one thing he's not supposed to. And what do they always say when you're up high? Don't look down. And what did Peter do? He was focused on Jesus, and all of a sudden he decides to look down. There's no boat. There's no wood. There's nothing. And the moment he takes his eyes off Jesus, what happens? He sinks. And that's what happens to you and I. When we risk and we have our eyes focused on Jesus. Uh, This passage really isn't about risk-taking, is it? It's really about Jesus. (sighs) But the moment we take our eyes off Jesus, what happens? Boom. Now, I'm glad Peter was wise enough That as he was going down, he did what? He cried out to God. Are you willing to... That that was wisdom? (laughs) Oh, man. Dude, I've got to give Louie an award here for the most imaginative uh, interpretations of Scripture. You see, because when Peter, you know, when he was sinking in the waves and, you know, he was, and he cried out, you know, the Lord save me. That was out of pure wisdom. Kudos to Peter there, to having the wisdom to cry out to the Lord. Most of us in that situation, we wouldn't have called out to the Lord. We would have just gone under the waves and disappeared. And, and the text would have read, thus perished whoever your name is. Yes. Oh, man. To cry out to God. Peter was sinking and he cries out to God. He says, Lord, save me. And what did Jesus do? Did Jesus just stand there and say, no, idiot. I knew he was going to do that. No. What did he say? He jumps out and he gives him his hand and he says, come on, Peter. Come on. And he grabs Peter at his greatest moment. How many of y'all know that? How many of y'all know that when you call out to God, God will reach out his hand and pick you up? Do you know that? I hope that if you have not experienced that, that you'll get to a place where you will experience that and know that God is always there with you and that you can boldly go where you've never gone before. You know, I, I, I mean, for heaven's sakes, I mean, water walking, come on, you know, who wants to experience that? It's already been done. I want to boldly go where no one's gone before. I'd like to lava walk. You know, can we go lava surfing? You know, uh, let's do something nobody's ever done before. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Hi, I, I, you know, let's uh, let's go moonwalking on the actual moon, not Michael Jackson style, because I I want to boldly go where no one's go. I want to experience something that no one's ever experienced before. That because you know that's what the whole reward there was for Peter. <sighs> and so Peter goes, and Jesus picks him up, and he says, 
Why did you doubt, O you of little faith? And I believe with all my heart, Jesus is not so much getting on him as Jesus is commending him and saying, man, you had it, Peter. You were almost there to me. Why did you look down? Why did you, why did you doubt? And I think God says that with us a lot. It's God, if, God says, if you only knew what I have for you, if you just would not doubt. If you just keep your eyes focused on me, you'll get to me, you'll experience it. But I think secretly... I th- so faith is the conduit by which I can experience things. Yeah, because that's the big reward. You know, you get to experience something new. Boldly go where no one's gone before, you know, Star Trek. I think Jesus was doing cartwheels because Peter showed amazing faith. And so Jesus was doing cartwheels. That Again, Louis, your imagination is out there, man. Dude, I'm beginning to think you may actually be under the influence of a controlled substance. I, I really believe with all my heart, you know, Jesus was doing cartwheels because of Peter's amazing faith. Well, then why did Jesus chide him for not having any faith or having little faith? And Jesus was thinking, of Peter gets it. Peter gets it. He gets it that he can step out of the boat because I'm here. The 11 others didn't get it. What did he get again? I'm a little bit fuzzy on that. You said he gets it. What's the it? What about us? Will God say that we get it? Because look at what it leads. Get what? You can't sit there and say, you know, is God going to say to us, do you get it? What's it? Don't sit there and say, you know, it. You know, if you either get it or you don't get it. If you don't get it, then you don't know what it is. But if you get it, you know what it is and you get it. Huh? <sighs> Leads to what's the whole point? You're talking about boldly going where you haven't gone before. You're talking about risking and taking a step of faith. Why? Why? God is building our faith. Okay, great. But what's the ultimate reason why? Let me show you the ultimate reason why. Look at verse 33. He says, oh, you a little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Whoa, did you notice that? Jesus gets in the boat, the wind ceases. That's done. He's got power over everything. But then look at verse 33. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly you are the Son of God. Yeah, basically pointing out that the story really isn't about Peter. This is really about Christ. And the details about Peter are rather embarrassing for Peter, not a high point in the, you know. You know. That's what it's all about. God wants to get you to a point in your life that everything about your life is worshiping him. That everything about your life is about bringing him glory and honor. That 24-7, you are bringing God worship through your actions, through your life, through your... Through your risk-taking, you're boldly going where no man has gone before, or woman, you know, we want to be equal here your faith, through your speech, through everything that you do. And they realized something that night. Yeah, Jesus has shown us all these things. Tonight, he showed us the greatest lesson. Man, he showed us he's got power over nature. Not only that, man, he showed us another level of faith. And we worshiped him tonight. I guarantee you. Yeah, I'm feeling my brain cells draining from my body through my ears, I think, at this point. The way the disciples worshipped in the boat that night is different than any other time they'd ever worshipped Jesus. Than any time they'd ever worshipped God. You know what I'm talking about? Have there been... No. (laughs) The text doesn't say anything about the fact that the the way they were worshipping Jesus was different than any other way they'd done it before. Uh, Where are you getting that? I I, got to warn people. I should have warned people before we got into the sermon. 
Uh, this is probably one of those sermons that could actually make you dumber by listening to it. There have been times that you worship God in a different way, in a closer manner than you ever have before. Because God has brought you through something. God has shown you something. God has taken you to greater places. The disciples worship differently that night. And that's the point of what God is trying to do in your life. And where are you getting that differently thing from the text again? Seriously, dude, your imagination is probably one of the craziest things I've ever heard in my life. He's trying to take you to places you've never been. So you'll know him like you never have before. And you'll worship him unlike anything you've ever done before. You're getting all that from that text that you just read. It ain't in there. And your life will bring him honor and glory. Honor and glory. I wonder what he's going to do today. I wonder what he's going to show me today. You see, it's my prayer. Your God's a loony, man. I don't want to have anything to do with that Jesus. He's crazy, man. wonder what he's going to do today. I don't want him to do anything. I've been praying for you. I've been praying this for you. All week. It's my prayer that tomorrow morning you're going to wake up and that the first thing you're going to think is, I wonder what he's going to do today. I wonder what God's going to do in my life today. I wonder what he's going to show me today. I wonder how my faith is going to grow today. Let's pray. Whew. Oh. I'm going to go stick my head in a bucket of cold water. I. What was that? <laughs> that was Lucy in the sky with diamonds, man. That What was that? That was the craziest bit of imagination I've ever heard in my life. I mean, he read a text for us. I got to give him credit there. He gave us some historical background to the text. And then he started telling us all about what he imagined the text was saying. He's got quite an imagination, though. Woo. Yeah, that's uh, yeah, that's up up there with like Harold and the Purple Crayon or something. But that wasn't biblical exegesis or sound biblical doctrine or sound interpretive method when it comes comes to the Bible. He was drawing conclusions that were I, they maybe they were in between the words and you know maybe they were in the tiny little spaces in the subparticles of the grammar that um, you couldn't see unless you put on your Louis Deco- you know, decoder spectacles. <laughs> wow. Uh, you know, normally I correct Bible twisting. It's not that he twisted the Bible. He read the Bible correctly. The conclusions he drew from it just weren't there. Ah, uh, yeah. Well, um, it's uh, time for us to boldly go where we went the night before, you know, the, the end of the program. I, I just don't even know where to go with that. Um, need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. It, it consider uh, the fact that uh, by supporting Pirate Christian Radio, you're actually giving the gift of this, uh, of this radio ministry you know, to other people, including yourself. And uh, would you consider strongly, more than strongly consider, to uh, generously and uh, to generously serve your neighbor uh, by allowing us to serve you uh, through this radio outreach by supporting us financially? You could do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com, and clicking on one of our friendly yellow donate buttons. Or if you like, you can uh, do it the traditional way. You can make your check payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. 
you know, normally I'm not rendered speechless by a sermon. Uh, <laughs> normally I have some framework to actually work from to kind of cap off the program. Uh, the best I could do is just basically say, hey, you know, did, did you really learn anything about the gospel in that, or were you distracted away from Christ? If if a pastor is not going to preach a text that actually that points you back to Christ and what he's done for you for your salvation, your great God and Savior, his death and resurrection on the cross, in the empty tomb, for your sins and for your justification, I, then chances are that uh, that's not biblical or Christian preaching. Uh, tonight, lots of imagination tonight, very little in the way of sound biblical interpretation. There's apparently a million different ways to, to uh, skin the cat of bad theology, and that's just a new one by me. <sighs> if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on today's program or any of our previous installments of Fighting for the Faith, f- please feel free to do so. You can uh, email me at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. I do read all of my email. do not have the ability to answer all of them. Or you can look me up on Facebook or follow me on Twitter. My name there is Pirate Christian. Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Christ's vicarious death on the cross for your sins. Until tomorrow, amen. Amen.